Hello, it's 23rd of November 2019 and this is episode 123 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary with a focus on the sequel trilogy in the future of the saga. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? Very busy. <laughs> There's been a lot going on in Star Wars. <laughs> I think it's going to be that way right through December now. Yeah, th- this is basically our lives um, for the next month, but I'm oddly okay with that. Yeah, sorry, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got your priorities right, Kirsty. <laughs> it's Star Wars season. <laughs> I'll see you in a month. Yeah. <laughs> but the TV spots are so good. <laughs> He'll understand one day. No, no, we, we just, we just... Um, but yeah, it's a month now until this movie comes out. Actually, just under a month, which is really terrifying, <laughs> but also very exciting. So yeah, we're in the home stretch now, guys, and I feel very excited. A bit trepidatious as well. So obviously, there's so much riding on the movie, but yeah, mostly excited. I feel. Me too. I am really excited, and it's just weird to think that after quite a few years now of having a star wars movie every year uh Mm. whatever time of year that is we're now not going to get one for is it 2022 is the next one now yeah that's right yeah so a little bit of breathing space at least we'll have the the tv series so yeah exactly god bless the mandalorian yes (laughs) yeah which gets better and better and we're very excited to talk about that this week we are going to go first into the news because there is a lot of it. It was quite funny last week when I was preparing the notes. There were literally like two or three quotes and that was it for the whole of the Rise of Skywalker section. Whereas this time there's like nine separate stories, all of these massive pieces of coverage. And yeah, that we're in content rich season. So there is no shortage of stuff to talk about. Yeah, so the first thing we'd like to talk about is that there have been some new TV spots released. So we'll talk about each TV spot separately. And I was thinking we could go through some of the more interesting shots one by one. So yeah, the first shot we got in the first TV spot that was kind of new. Um, Would you like to describe that, Kirsty? Yeah, well, just quickly, we should say... I know some people are kind of funny about TV spots, and I totally understand because I think last time for the Last Jedi, we actually got some quite thick, you know, things that some people would consider spoilery, like Ray using Kylo's lightsaber, for example. Yes, we got that pretty close to the movie's release, and I think it kind of shocked a lot of people. And they were like, "Oh, I feel like I've seen too much now." So, yeah. just a little warning that if you haven't watched these and you don't plan to, maybe just skip over this section so we don't spoil anything for you. Yeah, good idea. But yeah, there's nothing here that's like as as the the lightsaber thing because that was a huge deal. But um, this is a lot of stuff without context, really. I mean, we get this first shot of Ray looking at the child Vader mask. Um, so that's like a follow-on shot, or maybe actually this will be before we got the shot in the main trailer because that's her destroying it. Yeah. Um, but this is her in that white room. Um, she's got her staff. And uh, I don't know, what's that expression? She's looking pretty serious and intense. Yeah. It's the sort of facial expression that will be determined by context. Right. (laughs) In terms of how she's feeling. I would say kind of like 
awe, but the sort of negative awe. So she's recognising that this is like a very important, significant object, but it instills her with negative feelings. I don't think that's a happy face. Yeah, it's just, it's, this could potentially be very interesting because, of course, when we first meet Rey in The Force Awakens, she's so far removed from all of the Skywalker drama. She thinks Luke's a myth. Um, and I I think people have said, I think actually it was a Jenny Nicholson tweet. She said that at Galaxy's Edge, someone asked Rey about Vader and she thinks that he's a myth too, even now in the context of a post The Last Jedi <laughs> world which is I quite think hilarious. someone should take that actress to one side and explain <laughs> a few things <laughs> quite hilarious to think about but just in general like ray coming face to face with this and in the context of her knowing and understanding kylo so much more at this point too recognizing how much of a factor vader as an idea has had an impact on ben's life um I feel like that's all kind of coming to a head in this scene potentially as well. Oh yeah, definitely. So that's going to be the main level on which he'll relate to it. The corrupt influence that this presence has basically had on Ben Solo. Because we know that's a question that still deeply concerns her. So we have that whole discussion between Ray and Leia in Resistance Reborn. Mm. Where, yeah, Ray's wondering how could this have happened? And Again, I don't think J.J. Abrams is thinking, oh, yes, in Resistance Reborn, Ray and Leia had this conversation. But No, but someone yeah. at the story group might be. Yeah, right? you'd like to think so. That would be a nice thing to do. Um, but yeah, her looking at the Vader mask like that, all these thoughts are going to be running through her head about, yeah, this is what led Ben Solo to fall to the dark side. Or at least it was a contributing factor, so it wasn't the only thing. Yeah, I've made no secret of my little wish for Anakin Skywalker to be in this movie um, mm. but even if he's not physically present if we don't get to see Aiden um, I would love there to be more discussion about who Anakin was as opposed to who he became as Vader yeah um, and I, I would love for Rey and Kylo to kind of hash that out yeah no I feel like could really enrich stuff yeah Um. cool so then the next shot that we have I think this takes place on Kajimi, um, because of all the like stone in the background, the stairs and the pillars and everything. Does it look and it's snowing as well, right? Yeah, it's snowing. And it's rain Kylo on the planet and yeah, you can just barely tell it's Kylo because you can see the cross guard lightsaber and otherwise it's just a dark figure who could be anyone. Is this the first indication that we've had of him being on that planet too? I think in official materials, yes. Okay, well, yeah, that's what I mean. I didn't know that he was supposed to be there, so that was kind of a surprise for me. Yeah, no, it's a really cool shot. Um, I kind of think there's probably false Bondy shenanigans oh, going on Oh, yeah, of course. Just because yeah. we're seeing them together doesn't mean they're actually physically together. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And I'll tell you why I think that. I think it because Ray is dressed completely inappropriately for snow. Well, okay, yeah, so where did her coat go? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I know, obviously, in The Force Awakens, she was running about completely cheerfully and A-OK and fine in, on this snowy planet. But... In this situation, I feel like she would have been more prepared. And we know for a fact that she has that coat, hmm. as you said. So, yeah. Wait, so does this mean that, like, 
potentially Kylo's trying to chase her and he's got to Kajimi and she's left, but then <laughs> <laughs> but then it looks like she's still there, but she's actually not. She's elsewhere. <laughs> I really love that idea, so I hope that's what's happening. Because <laughs> it's just sort of like a comedy of errors. You know, it's like, oh, I've got to go here because Ray's here. And he gets there and it's like, oh, shit, Ray's gone. And then he has to, like, scoot off again to try and find her at the next location. And That's yeah, just, that, just that's funny. the movie, yeah. <laughs> Kylo Ren chasing her across the galaxy. <laughs> I could be down for that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, Ray doesn't look happy to see him. Um, <laughs> I think that's fair to say. But, again, reasonable. He's been a bad boy. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's not really much else. Oh, there's someone in the background, actually, isn't there? But there is. That could be someone, someone like, at... starting to run down the stairs. Yeah, it's hard to say whether that's going to be someone important to the scene or if it's just like a background thing. Yeah, it could be the Constable Zuvio of the Rise of Skywalker, <laughs> for all we know. <laughs> like, look what's going on down there. What are you doing? Oh, oh my. Well, if it is I'm a Force Bomb scene, it'll just be Kylo <laughs> with his saber. <laughs> talking to himself <laughs> dramatically pacing for no apparent reason yeah that could be really funny um then there's a shot of kylo in the white room with the mask on looking dopey mm. it looks really red hair i don't th- think i'd seen it before that the red looked quite so bold yeah no i think um something you pointed out to me is that there's something that came out from a hot toy that like the mask might pulsate red in time of Kylo's breathing and seeing this maybe yeah that would tie into that so it does seem to be a particularly vivid red and I could swear it's not usually that vivid Hmm. so yeah maybe he's just exhaling a particularly long and heavy (laughs) exhale at this point who knows Um, it looks a bit funny to me though it's like poster paint I know I I can't really get over it like I I understand why the mask is back. Um, if if only just to look at the out of universe aspects of selling toys and being a good marketing tool. But yeah, um, yeah it still looks goofy to me. So. <laughs> Bless him. I really, really hope Ray calls him out on it. Like that would sort of justify it a bit more for me. <laughs> because yeah, then at least I could be like, yeah, at least they know it's dopey. I, I could see that happening, but it could also be one of those Star Wars things where it's just not acknowledged. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to know, to be honest. Yeah, it's true. It's just a source of eternal amusement to me because Kaido obviously doesn't need the mask like Vader did. Yeah. And he's literally just been this huge poser. Well, and they, it's like, oh. Gosh. Yeah, maybe that will come up in the context of this scene because they are looking at Vader's helmet. So you can't help but compare them, right? Yeah. Exactly. So if Ray is ever going to rip into him about it, she should do it at this point. Mm. Okay, cool. So then the next shot is easily my favourite amongst all of these. It's just so gorgeous and ethereal. And I think the first thing I said to Kirsty over WhatsApp when I saw it was like, oh my god, major Orpheus and Eurydice vibes. Mm-hmm. Because that's the way our minds work, essentially. These um, mythological resonances and yeah it's not to say they're directly recreating the myth but there's just something about that imagery of these people following each other and 
then the inevitable separation when something goes wrong and oh yeah it's just so there's so much beauty and tragedy and poetry in this image i just can't go over it it's stunning yeah and the contrast of the light and dark outfits and yeah kylo being left in the underworld of the star destroyer yeah exactly and yeah there's also a shot later on that we'll talk about because it's one of the entertainment weekly exclusive shots but my, I think it seems pretty clear that that's a close-up on Kylo's face during this scene, presumably when he's like trying to plead with Ray or something. Mm. And yeah, you can see the boy is feeling things. He's feeling major, major feels. <laughs> then it's followed up in the next shot by Kylo doing what we've seen in a previous publicity photo, where he's sort of going into a crouch and like holding himself steady. I think as the Falcon prepares to take off. Is that what the vibe that you get in terms of what's happening, Kirsty? Yeah, so you can see that because the stormtroopers are kind of falling over behind him. Like like nine pins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he's well, he's leaning over, but he's still somewhat upright and looking ahead, focused. Uh, so clearly using the force to some degree. I just find this a little bit funny because it kind of looks to me like he's wearing skinny jeans. <laughs> <laughs> nice. High-waisted skinny jeans. Yeah, so it's just really going with the whole emo Kylo Ren aesthetic yeah looks like it's going to be an an amazing scene so yeah it's clearly really spectacular and it's also fascinating to me because obviously kylo could have ordered any of these stormtroopers to fire on ray well this is the thing is he letting her go Mm. i kind of feel like it has to be that way because it would just be so easy for him to give that order and then if he is just letting her go in full view of his men like this, then what does that say about him as a leader? It isn't automatically going to become this huge source of gossip and talk among the ranks. And yeah, I, it just furthers my conviction that Kylo's state as the supreme leader is going to be heavily undermined on account of his own actions and his own foolishness in this movie. Oh, absolutely. Especially his foolishness in relation to Ray. No, so. I 100% agree. And I... The reason I, I'm thinking that it is him letting him, her go is because that part of those kind of Beauty and the Beast stories is just such a fundamental moment, right? It's a shift for the characters. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. Yeah. Because even, even if he does, it might not be clear to everyone else. I mean, the next shot we see Finn is on the Falcon ramp waiting for Rey to leap over. So yes. it could be that Finn is the one to notice that Ben lets her go or something like that. Something that yeah. like evolves the dynamic and maybe makes other people besides them aware. Of, Wait, what's going on here? This is a little more complicated than it seemed to me before. So, Yeah, it's going to be so interesting. It's like, again, going back to that shot in Entertainment Weekly of just the close-up on his face, the vibe I'm getting, and again, I'm just speculating wildly at this point, Um is that he would want her to make the choice to stay. So that's why he's not forcing her. Again, the whole Beauty and the Beast thing, because he only wants her to remain behind if it's of her own choice. He doesn't want a repeat of that Force Awakens situation where he had her, but only because he'd abducted her and was keeping her against her will. Mm -hmm. This time he needs her to choose it. This is basically the part where he starts singing Evermore. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Oh my God. He... He walks away, just goes to his tower and starts breaking out into like a love ballad. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want to happen. Um, 
And yeah, that leap that Ray takes when she's jumping from the hangar over to the Falcon, it's so cool. And I love, I absolutely love that she's clearly using the same force move that Leia did in mm-hmm. The Last Jedi. Yeah. Her pose as she's flying is exactly the same. Because it's obviously way too big a gap to just jump it. So it has to be enhanced using the force. Yeah, they're doubling down on that, which I appreciate because that was one of the criticisms, one of the many that came out yeah. from The Last Jedi Backlash. <laughs> Yes, um, and also it has kind of a prequels vibe, which I appreciate too. All that leaping that Ray does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Leap faith. And then there has been another TV spot just today because, yeah, I think it's safe to say that we're going to get lots of TV spots from this point forward. Um, and I just picked out a few of the most interesting images. Um, so there were other images as well in it, like um, the Sith troopers, um, but. I don't have a great deal to say about that. Well, it doesn't really tell you anything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, So yeah, the first one we'll talk about is the Knights of Ren on a rock formation. (laughs) Give your review of this image, Kirsty. Like, what do you, how do you rate it? Well, I'm not the only one to say it, but it really does look straight out of a boy band music video. (laughs) It really does. (laughs) I don't know if that's the intent. It's just amusing in isolation i'm sure they're being very threatening and scary in the full yeah. context of the scene though i'm guessing this is when they're on pasana hunting down the resistance heroes right before that big chase that happens yes exactly and it looks to me like they're in the sort of circular formation like they've got someone looking out from every vantage point essentially so my guess is that they're keeping watch for the heroes yeah, I'm just really interested to see what level, if any, of characterization we get for the knights because they must have some in the um, Rise of Kylo Ren comics that are going to come out. Um, yeah. But who knows? That could be there because there's no time to really build them up in this movie. I'm guessing they don't have names for the movie itself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it'd be good to. Do they speak? You know? Like anything? <laughs> I hope so. I'd like yeah. to get some level of like, you know, are, are they comrades? Do they see themselves as even friends? Um, who is Kylo in relation to them? Do they see him as a friend or more like a boss? Yeah. Uh, is there a concept of friends among bad guys? I don't know. Certainly isn't for like Phasma and Hux, but <laughs> who knows for these people? Yeah. Kylo doesn't seem like a guy with lots of friends. Well, no, that's, that I think that's what's been hard to reconcile about him as the master of the Knights of Ren for a lot of fans. Um, because The Last Jedi really emphasised how isolated both he and Rey were. And of course, she did have friends in the Resistance, so it's possible that he has a parallel like that with the Knights, where it's like that camaraderie and comrades in arms, maybe, but not necessarily close friendship and understanding. Yeah. But, yeah, who knows? <laughs> yeah, like, I'm counting on very little characterization for them unfortunately so i think if they were going to be actual characters they would have cast actors to play them but there's been no indication whatsoever of who's playing these guys that's true oh matt smith is playing all of them (laughs) they're all clones they're matt smith (laughs) it's matt smith in (laughs) mocap i'm trash can ren oh no you cut trash can ren i'm so sad yeah He's not with us anymore. Yeah, rest in peace. Um, but yeah, my bet is that they're all play- played by stunt performers because I think these guys are just going to be needed to do cool fight scenes, to be honest. So they're so kind of yeah, like I- Praetorian guards, basically. 
Yeah, I, I have that as my baseline, you know. So then, if there's anything more to them, I'll be pleasantly surprised. Yeah, but yeah, I just expected nothing. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good good route to go because yeah. <laughs> we haven't been given any indication otherwise. It's like having six Ringo stars. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> that's really mean. Ringo's a great drummer, okay? <laughs> so yeah. I didn't mean that. That's that's too harsh. <laughs> okay, yeah. So overall, I think these TV spots are awesome. The only question in my mind is why they didn't include some of these kick-ass shots in the main trailer. Because I think stuff like Kylo watching Rey on the edge of the hangar, I think that's cooler than any of the shots in the main trailer, to be honest. So, yeah. How about you, Kirsty? What was your overall feel about the TV spots? Yeah, well, I do find that interesting about TV spots in general. I don't, I only really pay attention to the Star Wars ones, so I don't know what they were doing for, like, Endgame or whatever. Um, yeah. But it does seem like a lot of the most interesting stuff comes out later. And I don't know if that's just them trying to do one last push before the movie comes out just to convince people. But um, yeah, I think you're right. Like a statement shot like Ray leaping like that uh, is a lot more eye-catching than some of the other things we've got. Yeah. So then we'll move on to the next thing, which is that we have some very cool magazine covers for The Rise of Skywalker. So the first one is from Entertainment Weekly. And yeah, would you care to describe this cover, Kirsty? Um, it's Ray and Kylo in the middle, kind of back to back. Chewie's behind them, and then mm-hmm. on either side you've got Rose and Janna and Finn and Poe, and then of course the droids, BB and D. No. Nice. And what's the most distinguishing aspect of Kylo on this cover? He's unmasked. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh... glorious. <laughs> I was just saying to you that they have like evolved his hairstyle again instead of having a part he's kind of just got it pushed back yeah copious amounts of hair gel went into this I think yeah it's a very nice look for him he looks very sleek yeah it's kind of a pale from burn this if you're keeping up with the chronology of Adam Driver's hairstyles as I am (laughs) that's kind of what it reminds me of which makes sense so that's what that google doc is (laughs) (laughs) No, nice. Yeah, it looks really cool. It's, again, another one of those covers where obviously no one is in the same room. Everyone has been composited into this cover yeah. from separate images. But it's like, fine, I accept that this is just how it is. And I'll take whatever maskless Kylo I can get. Because initially for the marketing push, it was all purely masked Kylo. And I was like, come on. Yeah, we got the Vanity Fair covers. but um... Yes. Yeah, just in general, I'm... I don't want to be like super negative about this, but in general, these kind of covers and like the posters that just came out and stuff, they're falling a little flat for me just because it's clear that they only had one or two photos of each of the characters and they're just using the same ones over and over. Yeah. Um, which is a bit of a bummer. But yeah. Cause it, to me, it doesn't match the amazing visuals we're actually getting from the footage. It just doesn't seem yeah. in sync, which is strange. Maybe it's just a case of them trying to keep things under wraps for as long as possible to avoid leaks, but... It translates into stuff that's a little underwhelming. Yeah, I do feel like Entertainment Weekly and Empire, which we'll discuss in a moment, do historically have really god-awful covers. Like, not even just for Star Wars, just for, like, most things. They're often these really bad, obvious Photoshop jobs, basically. Why? And... Yeah, I really don't understand. I can only presume some market research has gone into it and said that you will sell more copies of the magazine by putting this number of faces on it. But, 
yeah hmm. it's just a bit of a shame yeah we got that shot for the last jedi we got a cover for entertainment weekly that was like ray and kylo kind of it looked like they were photoshopped they obviously weren't posing together um but it was like a big hint that was in line with a lot of the stuff that we've been hearing from the movie to be fair that they were going to be like on the same side briefly um it looked like they were in the background they were like in that elevator scene um, yes and of course he was unmasked for that too but yeah it's the same kind of vibe where it's like just doesn't look like a very cohesive natural image <laughs> yeah no absolutely and the Entertainment Weekly cover, at least, is more natural looking than the Empire ones. Which, yeah. <laughs> the grass on the Empire cover is just the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Sorry, yes. I'm just being really harsh now. It's a little strange. <laughs> I mean, I really appreciated this cover because um, I just it really struck me in terms of representation that this movie is bringing. Um, yeah. Really exciting to have Rose and Jana pictured together. Yeah. Of course, Finn and Ray and yeah the the classic droids in the foreground um but yeah i agree with you like stepping back and actually looking at how the images are put together it's not the best (laughs) but yeah no i agree with you it's a nice group of characters to have in the same my image basically so it appeals to me in that way and yeah i think when i buy the magazine which i will because you get a sick cifrate art card with it Mm. um which i really want um yeah i'll probably get this cover because i feel like it's the best apart from the subscriber cover which is clearly better than all of them but unfortunately i'm not an empire subscriber so i can't get it so it's just a lesson that i should have become an empire subscriber (laughs) but yeah Um, so you don't like the kylo and knights of ren one no (laughs) (laughs) it's just it's very vanilla to me because it's literally just a bunch of dudes who are masked in black standing together with weapons mm-hmm. and i'm sure that's very exciting to many fans and awesome i'm sure it will sell a lot of copies um but yeah it doesn't do anything for me yeah i'm i'm unsure about it because i feel like once i read the rise of Ky- kylo ren comics that kind of thing might actually be a lot more interesting and appealing yeah but yeah right now in the context of just what we've got from the movie so far it's like mm. Like we were saying, there's just not much to go on in terms of the Knights of Ren even being characters. Yeah. So, but I do think it's interesting that he's being placed with them as opposed like we we haven't seen really anything of General Hux, and we know that Richard E. Grant's pride is um, in the First Order as well. But he's being positioned with the Knights of Ren as opposed to officers in the First Order. Yeah, no, which is a good point because previous Empire covers have shown Kylo with characters like Hux and Phasma. So, yeah, that does feel significant. Do you want to talk about the subscriber cover? Oh, you bet I do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so it's a really beautiful illustrated cover by Paul Shipper, who did another cover for Empire a few months ago, which was also really gorgeous. Um, And this one, it shows Rey and Kylo holding up their lightsabers in parallel. And yeah, it creates like this effect for purple glow with their lightsabers. And yeah, it's just combining the light and the dark. And you've got Palpatine's face in the background. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I feel like this is some pretty heavy visual storytelling. What does story does this cover tell you, Kirsty? Uh, well, initially it's like, oh, I wish this had been the teaser poster. Oh god, yeah, that would have been so but much nicer. I feel like it would have been a cool evolution from the Last Jedi's 
teaser poster um, and the one that we did get for the Rise of Skywalker disappointed me a little bit because um, like you say this one does kind of tell a story very simply that their blades are in unison um, their hands are together obviously kind of following on from that imagery of their hands touching in The Last Jedi and you've got Sheev kind of looking on um, yep. as if like their powers combined are of interest to him um, yeah yeah and I also get the idea that by combining their power, they are able to overcome him. Like, so there's obviously that like beam of light in the middle by the title of the magazine um, that, yeah, suggests some huge power that they have when they combine their forces. And, yeah, I think they're going to overcome Palpatine. Don't you know that their coming together will be their undoing? <laughs> well, that's what Palpatine wants you to think. <laughs> <laughs> Say it ain't so. If he says it, it must be true. <laughs> Palpatine never lied. Not for a single day in his whole life. <laughs> then we have a few nice stills from the movie, courtesy of Entertainment Weekly. Um, the first one shows Ray with the little training ball. And she's got that red ribbon in her hand or tied to her hand. I'm not quite mm. sure. And yeah, th- that's my main question regarding this image. Like, What is going on with that red ribbon? Yeah, I mean, I think in the movie itself, it'll turn out to be kind of inconsequential. But in terms of symbolism, um, we're not the only ones to point this out. Obviously, it kind of reminds us of the Red Thread of Fate, um, which has been kind of a motif in a lot of uh, Rey and Kylo theorizing Mm -hmm. throughout the last couple of years. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I guess this image is like just before the, or maybe after, actually, I don't know, the, the opening shot of the main trailer where she's running through the forest um training by herself and getting the sense from her that she's frustrated about something yeah no definitely then the next shot is the one that i've already spoken about quite a bit (laughs) because it's clearly from the scene shown in the tv spot where it's in the hangar and ray and kylo are facing each other and yeah how would you describe kylo's facial expression kirsty um very thornton in north and south saying look back at me (laughs) yes (laughs) it's so much that vibe (laughs) it's um yeah it's very like puppy dog i suppose yeah just like looking longingly perhaps imploringly so many inly words apply to this image i think yeah he's good at that yeah it's kind of the sequel to him at the end of the last jedi where he's looking up at her as she leaves on the falcon yeah Exactly. Which is why I'm kind of okay with it if it does just turn out to be like a large chase movie of Ray with Kylo <laughs> chasing Ray because there's going to be so many opportunities for those scenes. <laughs> and he does it so well. JJ knew what he had so he decided to maximise it. Cool. Then we have a pretty sweet shot of Finn and Jana, and yeah, no story information in this image but they both look really cool. I love their costumes. Hmm. What do you think they're looking at? I presume the Death Star? Yeah, okay, so this is interesting to me because we got that shot in the trailer of Finn, like, running towards what I assume is Rey and Kylo, like, on the Death Star, and Janna in the background. Mm-hmm. So how do they get to... I cannot figure out this movie. Like, they get there, but, like, where's Poe at this point? Um, yeah. I'm just... Not that it matters. Like, the actual plot of the movie... You know, that'll come when I actually see it. So it's mostly about teasing out the themes, which I'm 
you know, I think are being uh, communicated pretty clearly. But in terms of like figuring out where everyone is and when they're supposed to be and I don't know, it's still a mystery to me, which means they're doing a good job, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. They're building excitement, but they're keeping it under wraps. Yeah, I just wonder what um, their mission is here at this point and how long in the context of these scenes have Finn and Jana been together? Yeah. Um, yeah, what what are they trying to do? Why are they at the Death Star, but he's separated from Rey somehow? Like, is this them reuniting with Rey, that they went their separate ways and then came back together? Those are all excellent questions. <laughs> we just don't know. Yeah, exactly. I like to think the film will answer most of them. Well, yeah. <laughs> Oh, and yeah, just finally, I love Jana's cape so much. It's so beautiful. Yeah, she looks fantastic. Yeah. Um, yep, then we have some sort of resistance hangout where it's um, Poe, Finn and Rose in the super, foreground. Supernatural pose from Poe there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, me, I'm just standing here like this, looking like a model. <laughs> he really does look like he belongs in an underwear catalogue or something. <laughs> oh my god yeah it's quite funny maybe that's how the resistance is earning money they're like pimping out Poe to like as a male model <laughs> but yeah everyone looks cool I like Rose being in the picture with the heroes that's very yes. important to me and she looks really nice again I love this new haircut for her and yeah people are presumably doing serious resistance business mm-hmm. as a side note I love how diverse the background characters are in the oh, sequel yeah. trilogy, um, which I, I remember from films like Rogue One, has not been so great for others. Mm, so yeah, shout out to JJ and Ryan for making that a priority. It's really nice, and I think all the sequel trilogy films have done a great job of that. Then the next one is our first. Um, no, actually, it's not our first ever look, but it's one of the very few looks we've had at Richard E. Grant's character, General Pride. And yeah, I love him already. Look at that fierce, <laughs> fierce expression. So I was going to say, I think he was posing similarly in the uh, Vanity Fair photo with Hux. <laughs> I-, I do love it when they have these like um, military type villains who look like this, basically. So it's like, do you look like that when you're eating your dinner? Do you look like that when you're like brushing your teeth? Do you look like that when you're just like putting slippers on to like potter about the home? <laughs> they always just look like they're smelling something bad. <laughs> yes. And honestly, I'm so excited to see this dude interact with Hux because I feel like there's going to be such interest and tension there. And yeah, they've got to at least give us a few scenes where those characters are operating in relation to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love Richard E. Grant, so I'm very excited to see his part. I don't expect it to be a major role, but yeah, I'm sure he'll be amazing in it. Exactly. He makes a good, fierce commander, I think. Um, and then the next shot, I think, ties into this, the Kajimi stuff that we've seen before, with the snow and all the stone buildings. Um, and yeah, it's just snowtroopers, as you, as they say, um, marching about. Um, and I'm sure they're there for completely reasonable, friendly purposes. Definitely. They're just yeah. stop, stopping in for a drink. Oh, aren't we festive? See, we blend in with the snow. How lovely. <laughs> yeah, so it's pretty um, lovely of them. Okay, cool. 
so then we have quotes so we're moving on from images to words <laughs> which is a big step for us which will tell us just as little <laughs> to be honest yeah. but they have to keep talking we can have fun with it that's the nature of a podcast um so yeah the first bit we have is that john baker has given some quotes about the rise of skywalker would you like to read out what he's had to say kirsty yeah so this is from entertainment weekly as well um, it says, both Isaac and Boyega say they had their character wishes granted for the final film. Isaac wanted Poe to get out of the cockpit and into the group, while Boyega wanted Finn to become a more capable soldier, and not, as the actor candidly puts it, just a comedic, goofy dude who never gets stuff done. I definitely wanted more after episode 8, Boyega says. Rise of Skywalker makes Finn's episode 8 arc make more sense. We got to bring out a side of Finn we haven't seen. Yeah, I think John has been pretty transparent about the fact he wasn't satisfied with how he was handled in episode 8 which is a shame because I know that we both like Finn's arc in The Last Jedi Um, John's obviously free to feel however he likes about how his character was depicted in that film so I don't want to delegitimise his opinions and stuff, it's just yeah, I guess it's a bit of a bummer that he's not more infused about it but it, it is what it is yeah, that's the thing. He does have the right to feel about the story however he does, just like any fan, to be honest. Um, yeah. It's just a shame to me because I do get the feeling, and I'm, I need to tread carefully here, because at the end of the day, as I said, John has the right to express himself, has the right to have an opinion on the character and his arc. Um, but I get the feeling sometimes, based on how he interacts with fans on Twitter, that some of the criticisms of The Last Jedi and some of them um, kind of with malicious intent, to be honest, mm. um, have kind of got to him. Um, yeah. So this idea, I see this a lot from people who really had a problem with the movie and particularly with Finn and Rose's subplot. This idea of him being the comedic, goofy dude who never gets stuff done. A big central idea in The Last Jedi is that sometimes people fail and that's okay because you learn from it and all of the characters to an extent in all of their different ways fail in that movie Um, Rey fails so does Luke Uh, Kylo definitely fails and and so does Finn and that's okay because it allows for character development obviously people can feel the way they feel if they don't like it they don't like it but I think it's a real shame um, that as you say it's kind of becoming clear that John didn't like the way Ryan took his character yeah. um, The only, I do find it encouraging at least that he seems happy with how JJ evolved things with the rise of Skywalker but again it just kind of highlights that yes this is a three part story it's a trilogy so yeah. there was always going to be more to do with that character it was clear that at the end of The Last Jedi there were still so many more directions he could go in. There was so much yeah. growth potential there, um, just as there is with Ray. So, of course, there was always going to be more, and that's that's to be expected. Yeah, no, I think that's very well stated. And yeah, like I, I at least like that John says that the Rise of Skywalker makes Finn's Episode Eight arc make more sense. Because, yeah, hopefully that was also a very personal thing for him as well. Because maybe when he was doing eight, he kind of didn't feel... He didn't really see what those character developments 
were serving. You know, he didn't understand why Finn was being taken on that specific journey. And then it's positive that it looks like JJ has been able to recontextualize that for him in a way that feels satisfying. So, mm. yeah, that's I good. guess the only thing that surprised me about that is that during episode eight season, when he was talking about Finn's arc, John did seem to understand it pretty well. Um, yeah. The idea of Finn being kind of a fish out of water and that just because he left the First Order, it didn't necessarily mean that he was aligning himself with the Resistance. Um, and that movie is the story of him deciding to devote his life to that. I think you've said it to me like off the podcast before, but I think it also seems pretty evident that John has let all this like fandom, like how do I even put it? fandom nonsense like get to him in terms of this horrible discourse surrounding the last jedi and finn in particular because yeah some of the sentiments he evokes they do seem to cohere quite naturally with some of the sentiments evoked by the people who belong to what is known as the fandom menace yeah so then we have quotes from daisy ridley and jj abrams about ray's characterization which i'll read out ray is driving her own thing ridley says She's not doing what other people are telling her to do. I have skills that have developed, but confident isn't a word I'd use to describe it, Ridley says. She's definitely more in control of everything and can do new fun stuff, but she's vulnerable and a little insecure about it all. Yet Ray will use more than her force powers in the new film, as Abrams hints. The scavenger who is desperate and haggling for portions and trying to survive in The Force Awakens. Those special skills and that special experience ends up being something that is essential to saving the galaxy. And yeah, this sort of stuff sounds really awesome to me and I really like all of it for what it communicates about what they're doing with Ray in the movie. Because, yeah, especially that stuff about Ray's early experiences on Jakku being really critical to the choices that she ultimately makes and what she's capable of doing in this final movie. Because, yeah, I see her journey as being one about assimilating all these different experiences and forming them into something that's whole and complete. Yeah, I think that's been a really important um, note for the character throughout the story because we get things like in the Last Jedi novelization um, that Rey is, well, she, I guess she says it herself in the Force Awakens movie that she knows all about waiting, um, yeah. that she's good at that, um, and that she's also good at the scavenging is goes beyond the literal like scavenging for her survival but that she's skilled at waiting things out and drawing things out from people and arguably yeah. herself and that it's important where she came from and not in terms of her being important um like the daughter of someone important but that her root as a nobody from nothing um actually does matter because it shaped who she is yeah no absolutely and i do think jj's quote here kind of ties in to what we were speculating on a while back in terms of there being like a quest aspect to the rise of skywalker um and kind of that third act in like a cupid and psyche story yeah no totally her going through her trials yeah it'll be so interesting to see what form the trials take in the movie mm-hmm um okay awesome then we have daisy ridley on ray's parentage would you like to read these out kirsty yeah the parents thing is not satisfied for her and for the audience ridley says 
That's something she's still trying to figure out. Where does she come from? It's unclear if Abrams has made a course correction to Last Jedi writer-director Ryan Johnson's plan, or there was always more to say about Rey's parentage. Either way, wasn't the episode 8 scene supposed to be sincere? It's not that she doesn't believe it, Ridley says carefully, but she feels there's more to the story, and she needs to figure out what's come before so she can figure out what to do next. Yeah, again, I think that ties into the previous stuff about like Ray's background being so critical, because, yeah, it's about getting that proper sense of closure, because Last Jedi obviously gave an answer to the parentage thing, but you can tell that from the way that ended, it still wasn't emotionally resolved for Ray, at least. And yeah, going by all the discussion, she's also right to point out that lots of the audience still have questions too. So yeah, I think that's a very logical direction to take things in. How do you feel about this whole parentage thing, Kirsty? Well, it depends what they're talking about. So mm. uh, if they're talking about in terms of Ray processing her own trauma, because she comes face to face with it in The Last Jedi. Kylo kind of forces her to face it at that point. Like, obviously, throughout the film, she's asking herself and going into the cave. And But in terms of actually, like, facing the truth of what happened, what was done to her, um, mm. it's kind of put out there and then all of this other stuff happens so she doesn't have time to actually reflect on it. Um, so if, if that's the kind of thing we're talking about, then, of course, that totally makes sense. Rey needs to kind of come to accept that herself and move forward. Yeah. Um, so I, I just hope that that's what it is and it's not because the way she's saying like oh for her and for the audience a large portion of the audience was disappointed because she wasn't related to a Skywalker that's yeah. what it came down to a lot of people so if that's what she's talking about it's like well unless you're actually planning to make her related to someone we already know then that's not going to satisfy those people because that's mm. what they wanted um, so she's potentially talking about something quite different for the character versus the audience yeah, like, I'm very curious to see what they do with the parentage thing. I think it's going to be controversial, whatever direction they choose, to be honest. I don't see any way of resolving that question without pissing at least one segment of fans off. So, yeah. <laughs> I think it's all going to be about the execution, which I feel like I say every episode at this point. But, yeah, it'll be interesting. Yeah. I don't want to like draw a line in the sand here because if it goes this way there's nothing I can do about it and I just kind of sure. it's just the story and it's not the story that I'm telling so yeah. it's not like I have any control but um, if it turns out that Ray nobody is not actually where they're taking it I will personally be really disappointed because that seems to be in line with what the themes of the story are um, that was important for Ray's story in my opinion and mm just as an audience member it really resonated with me and um, yeah. this idea that someone can come from nothing and still have an awesome destiny and still impact things on a grander scale and still matter yeah no exactly it's gonna have to be a question of just taking the story on its own terms and <laughs> seeing how well it does it yeah um okay cool so then we have adam driver and jj abrams talking about the development of kylo ren and the relationship between ray and kylo <laughs> What? Um, so I'll read this. Kylo has grown beyond being a petulant teenager. And Driver says Kylo's killing of Supreme Leader Snoke was kind of a birth moment for him. He had all of these pseudo-father figures that he had to either live up to or literally kill to become his own person for the first time. Yeah, more killing, but fine. Also, one of yeah. them was his literal father figure, not a pseudo. <laughs> yes. 
and thus he knows something we don't. <laughs> um, yeah, the actor says, Naturally, Carlo's destiny will lead to at least one lightsaber clash with Rey. Abrams sees the duo as two sides of the same coin, noting even when they're not together, they still haunt each other in a way. They know they are each other's unresolved business. For his part, Driver rejects any labels for the Ray-Kylo relationship. I don't think it's all one thing, he says. Part of the fun of playing it is the boundaries of it keep changing. At times it's more intimate, sometimes less intimate, sometimes it's codependent, and then it's obviously adversarial. So I don't know why I said that in such a silly voice. <laughs> um, it's actually a really good quote, and yeah, I like all of this. What are your thoughts, Kirsty? Um, I do too, and it's very in line with kind of what we've both been saying on the podcast since the Last Jedi, right? Um, the mm-hmm. importance of him um, killing all of those father figures, and then it being like, right, I'm kind of on my own now, and I have to figure things out from here because none of that has brought me any peace. Yeah. So what do I do now? Who do I become? How do I distinguish myself from this horrible legacy that was kind of foisted on me from birth? Could have been a blessing, but turned out to be a curse. Um, Yeah, it kind of all comes down to this for the character. And um, because this is a coming of age story, we have seen him grow from, as Adam says, the petulant teenager. Um, I think for Rey and Kylo, they're going to seem less childlike in this movie. Yeah, um, and the two sides of the same coin quote from JJ that's him echoing exactly the kind of thing that Ryan was saying before The Last Jedi came out um, dual protagonist two sides of the same coin all yeah. that sort of stuff so. it's right out of the same playbook it's the new satisfying for the Rise of Skywalker campaign <laughs> <sighs> um, yeah I especially like all the quotes about the relationship because Adam has said before that it's not all one thing so that's on record yeah Yeah. no exactly and I think that's important to state because it's not just that he has the hots for this girl and thinks she's super sexy although probably an element of it because yeah it's Daisy Ridley (laughs) it's pretty self-evident but yeah it's so much more complicated and profound than that there's this real like soul level connection between these two people and there's this like profundity to it that yeah I think he's just trying to convey all that when he talks about it in this way and yeah also the fact that there's the good and the bad there's the like nice moments where they're chatting and then there's the not so nice moments where they're trying to lightsaber each other (laughs) and yeah so it's all very complicated that all of this complexity and like supposedly contradictory elements are why we're all so invested in this relationship yeah I think that's what I find a little frustrating about um, the discourse that goes on or this kind of thing that is like oh he rejects any labels as if it's a dig at anyone who does try to put a label on the relationship because it's natural for an audience who does not have the force because that's magic um, <laughs> to try and translate it into something that we can know and understand and relate to yeah there's elements of love in there there's elements of resentment and jealousy and it is incredibly complicated because these people aren't just two people who forge an intimate connection that has no implications for the wider context of the galaxy it has incredibly important implications for the rest of the galaxy and that that's why it matters that's why they're at the center of the story and why there is that political element and why there's so much heartbreak at the end of the last jedi when he gives this proposal and she has to reject it 
Um, because there, of course, the tension there is that a part of her wants to stay with him. That's why yeah. it matters. Exactly. And I like to think that a big part of this movie will be them f- both figuring out what the other person means to them and what they're prepared to do for that person. Yeah, especially from Kylo's side, because in The Last Jedi, we saw in a very visceral way what Rey was prepared to do to try and help Ben and to try and save him. And I think this movie has to be where Kylo slash Ben steps up and demonstrates what he's prepared to do to demonstrate how he feels about Rey and how he views her and how he wants to be viewed by her. So, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because there's an element of sacrifice in terms of him showing that bravery and like choosing her over Snoke and killing his master. But then he fell back and decided he wanted to not relinquish that power but take it for his own and and try and justify it to himself in terms of like oh we can make something new and move beyond the binary of the jedi and sith but um i think really ray saw quite through that right she yeah she she still knew that that translated into her friends being uh in great danger at that point so um yeah kylo kind of needs to process that and understand and um yeah figure out something that would actually show some genuine sacrifice on his part um and show the depth of his feelings for ray exactly cool then finally we have a quote where jj abrams talks about the story he's telling and how it interacts with the past so you can tell i've prepared good notes this time (laughs) (laughs) um could you read out this quote please kirsty that Rey and Kylo end up battling on the wreckage of the second Death Star continues Abrams' penchant for showing, showcasing ruined relics of the original trilogy, like Rey spelunking in a wrecked Star Destroyer and living in an at walker on Jakku in Force Awakens. It felt like going into the haunted house, the place that you have to go to, Abrams says, of bringing back the iconic space station. This is a story of people having to grapple with the burden the prior generation dumps on those that follow. So literally returning to this wreck of the past and having to fight it out felt like an obvious metaphor, but also felt incredibly cinematic. Ding, 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 we're winners! <laughs> I mean, this stuff was pretty on the nose, but... Yeah, it, it wasn't, like, yeah. too hard a stretch, to Let's be honest. pat but... ourselves on the back. <laughs> yeah, we did literally say the words haunted house before JJ said them, so... Yeah. Yay! Yeah, it's... Um, pretty clear imagery right of like the shattered windows and the light streaming through and that this room has so much history tied up in it they are literally standing where the emperor and darth vader and luke skywalker stood 30 years ago so yeah exactly and the question is how their actions and choices going to parallel and diverge from the choices that were made back then and yeah there's going to be many thousands of words to be written about this movie when it comes out, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what he's saying here about this is a story of people having to grapple with that burden. He's not just talking about The Rise of Skywalker. I think he's talking about this trilogy as a whole. And that's something we've been discussing since The Force Awakens, because clearly the character who that stuff, that conflict has embodied so much in is Kylo. But then Rey comes flying into the story and she's just made a part of the skywalker saga whether she likes it or not yeah um she is kind of brought into all of this family mess because that's what it is i mean (laughs) the skywalkers are the hot mess of the galaxy yeah they are like incredible dysfunction (laughs) 
Yeah, they're the gods that, you know, their personal choices shape everything for everyone else. Um, and often those people have no concept and awareness of that. But um, that's the story that's being told. So, yeah, are they going to kind of embrace the good and the bad of that legacy and kind of move beyond that trauma in a way, you know, we've had it explored in books like Bloodline. Um, Leia was never able to move past that at that point. She didn't, she never got to know Anakin Skywalker as a person. She only saw the bad in Darth Vader torturing and capturing her. And she just heard it secondhand from Luke that he had been redeemed. She had to take his word for it. And it wasn't that she didn't believe him. But how do you reconcile that insanity in your mind? Yeah. Um, that, that U-turn without having seen it and been a part of it. Um, yeah. So I like to think that this is bringing closure to Leia's story as well. It's bringing closure to all of them, but I, I don't know. It's it's hard to reconcile with the idea of Leia playing a smaller part in this story as well when she was supposed to play such a huge part. Yeah, and it just further underlines how momentous JJ's task is, doesn't it? Yeah. The fact that he's dealing with having to close out the stories of these sequel trilogy characters and having to bring some resolution to those stories of the older characters too. I, I so, feel like Kylo yeah. as the prodigal son returning was going to be that closure for Leia in terms of mirroring the original trilogy that she never got. Um, hopefully they found a way to still pull that off for her. Um, I'm, I'm just curious to see how that stuff is going to intersect with the prequel story, if at all. Um, like I said earlier, again, I hope there is kind of a, a more explicit acknowledgement of Anakin and even Padme, uh, especially if we've got the Emperor returning, but we'll see. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Like, I'm annoyed, so I don't think I have it in the notes, but I do recall seeing a quote from JJ floating around where he said something to the effect of they've been able to, in The Rise of Skywalker, tell the story with Leia that they always wanted to tell. Good, okay. So, yeah, I wish I could source that, but I'm pretty confident it's a real thing that (laughs) JJ said. And if it is a real thing that JJ said, I think that's very encouraging because, Yeah. yeah, it would be heartbreaking to have to diverge from the original intent completely. No, definitely. Okay, awesome. So we move back to images because I carefully designed the notes to space us out and (laughs) save us from having to do just quote after quote. Um, So yeah, the first poster that we have is the really cool German poster, which is like a Drew Struzan-esque illustrated poster. Um, And this is like the messy as fuck poster of my dreams. basically so it literally has every character conceivable on it it even has dominic monaghan on it a really tiny dominic monaghan um and yeah it's a source of delight for me do you like this poster kirsty uh no but i never like these posters honestly that's and i don't want to be negative or complain about things these kind of illustrations or these kind of posters that are just kind of a composite they're just not for me Sure, that's absolutely fine. Yeah, it's totally fine. So Yeah. Don't get me wrong, I wouldn't have this on my wall. (laughs) But I think I just found the main theatrical poster for the Rise of Skywalker kind of like I think I liked it, but it was kinda like meh. Oh, I agree with you that that wasn't for me either. (laughs) Yeah. Whereas this one it's just so ostentatious and there's so much going on. I feel like pew pew, pew pew, colour, colour, characters, characters, Hux, Pride, Knights of Ren, sorry, Dominic Monaghan, whoever he is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like it on that level. I did notice there's a Porg. Yes, there's a little baby Porg. So cute. Yeah, 
porgs continue to be cannon haters, deal with it. <laughs> um, and yeah, I also like the position of unmasked Kylo by Ray's Fies, which has been widely commented oh my upon God. by the internet. I'm not being a pervert. Everyone is saying Oh no, it, okay? it's, yeah, yeah, it's right there. Uh, <laughs> it's a literal description of what in, we're seeing. In your face or in his face, you might say. Uh, <laughs> It's the foreshadowing we all needed. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> oh my god. I do appreciate you though. I love that shot of Kylo Ren slash Adam. I really hope that that is based on some sort of photo that we will eventually see because that's too beautiful to be hidden from the world. So, oh, I thought that yeah. was kind of a mirror image of the one that Entertainment Weekly put on. Is it not the same? Mm, let's have a look. It's kind of similar, hmm. but mm, I'm just going back. Yeah, it is actually really similar. Yeah, maybe it is the same. I feel like his expression on the poster is a bit nicer. He looks quite kind. Um, but yeah, maybe that's just me projecting what I want from Kylo. <laughs> oh, how kind. Oh, lovely. Oh. I guess I do like the symmetry of like Finn's blaster and Chewie's bowcaster. Like, yeah. obviously some care has been put into the the arranging of this poster, even though there are so many characters there. Like, they're trying to convey some symmetry and cohesion. So I, I can appreciate that part. Yeah. It's better than the Empire covers. Not that that's hard. So then... We well, have... you, you didn't want to discuss the amazing character posts with the black backgrounds? Oh, God, yeah. I was just trying to um, wipe those out from my mind. Um, I didn't include them in the notes because I find them kind of offensive, in how bad and basic they are. But we now finally have character posters for The Rise of Skywalker that are bad and basic. I don't I don't even think I can call them bad. It's just that they're so aggressively bland. Yeah. I just don't even understand the point of them because they're all images we've seen before. There's nothing there in terms of telling us anything about the characters. Just compared with the, the artistry of the ones they released for The Last Jedi around D23. Yeah. The fact that we had to wait longer for these ones and then they were still so disappointing. It's like, <laughs> you really may as well not have bothered. Yeah. It's like, did they like suddenly forget that they'd done character posters? I think it's a possibility, honestly. So then we have a Rolling Stone interview with Kathleen Kennedy. Um, and this is a very long, detailed interview that I am absolutely not going to read out all of because this podcast would be four hours long. And it's just way, way too much. We'll just read out a few quotes that are considered to be most interesting. And yeah, I'll take the first one. So Kathleen was asked, Jurassic World director Colin Trevorrow was slated to write and direct episode 9 before you brought J.J. Abrams back in. Is this final entry in the trilogy a particularly hard nut to crack? Oh, it's easy, piece of cake. No, that's not what she said. Um... (laughs) Every one of these movies is a particularly hard nut to crack. There's no source material. We don't have comic books. We don't have 800-page novels. We don't have anything other than passionate storytellers who get together and talk about what the next iteration might be. We go through a really normal development process that everybody else does. You start by talking to filmmakers who you think exhibit the sensibilities that you're looking for. And I would argue that the list is very small. People who really do have the sensibilities about these kinds of movies. And then the experience and the ability to handle how enormous a job these movies are. So we try to be as thoughtful as we possibly can about making those choices. 
I would also argue that sometimes people get involved in the normal development process and then they realise, oh my god, this is so much more than I ever imagined. So it's pretty common that when you're working on movies, you're not making choices and decisions that necessarily work out exactly the way you want from the get-go. It's been an evolving process with lots of people and lots of opinions and then you try to shape something into what it eventually becomes. So I feel really fortunate that I've worked with so many great people that have been absolutely committed, JJ being one of them. He's a huge fan, incredibly passionate about Star Wars and has been from the moment he and I sat down and started talking about this and the more he got involved, the more excited he became. So I think if you asked him today, he probably wishes he'd been in a situation where he could have done all three. But as I said, these are huge projects. Yeah, I find this response really interesting, Kirsty. Um, how do you feel about it? Uh, I do think it's a, a very honest, candid response, and I appreciate that. Um, mm-hmm. I always appreciate hearing from Kathleen Kennedy. Um, ugh, in terms of how it's been received, it makes me incredibly frustrated that people willfully misconstrue the context of what she's talking about and are like oh we don't have 800 page novels she destroyed the eu like that's not what she's talking about here she's talking about the sequel trilogy yeah um there was no source material unless you literally wanted her to adapt the thrawn trilogy which no thanks yeah um (laughs) and would literally not work (laughs) so yeah um, she's right, you know, it's not the same as the MCU. I know it's incredibly tempting for people to compare the two, and, and we have, because that's the other big franchise, but it's to the point of them being contrasted. They are not the same. Um, they have to develop new characters that don't have decades of material. Yeah. Um, so it does take time, and I think there's an awful lot of pressure put on Star Wars, obviously from Disney, to keep bringing in that money. Um, but from fans as well to like churn out the movies at an aggressive pace when really it's like if you want quality we might have to wait for it yeah so that's what we're dealing with exactly i think it's a very very diplomatic response i think it's very classy of her to focus on what the difference was with bringing in jj and how that helped matters rather than giving like a sound bite you just know that if she had mentioned colin and in the quote like that would have just been the only thing that people would focus on and it would be like oh Kathleen Kennedy smears Trevorrow like yeah you know she's not interested in doing that she's a professional so yeah so yeah I agree with you cool okay awesome could you read out the next question and the highlighted section of the answer yes they've asked uh what strikes you about how he uh JJ and his co-screenwriter Chris Terrio did manage to crack the nut for this one Chris is a very, very thoughtful, intelligent guy that JJ chose and we all got to know. And again, it went through much of what we often go through, which is endless discussion, lots of artwork. Luckily, JJ had already been into a pretty deep dive before he was doing Force Awakens, and during the process of that movie, it's almost like an education of getting acquainted with all aspects of Star Wars. Not only just looking at the movies, but talking to the number of people that are still around that worked with George for years, understanding the mythology that he created. One of the things we talk about all the time is the fact that it was very important to George that these stories really meant something, that they have something to say, and that they have a real emotional core. So we spend a lot of time talking about that and trying to find the spine of a story that feels satisfying. When you're dealing, as I said, with something where you don't necessarily have any source material, then you're looking for a filmmaker who has a strong point of view, who can find themselves in the characters and in the story. 
that's what drives the momentum of the storytelling. And I think JJ is a perfect example of that. Yeah. No, like, again, I really like this sort of quote. And I think there's real passion and belief in this movie, The Rise of Skywalker. And I think it's really admirable that everyone rallied around it to this extent. Uh, Of course, it's natural that they would because so much rides on this movie being good. But yeah, I do sense there's real passion and belief in it is a creative product. I don't think it's being half-assed. I don't think it's just being trotted out to make the billion dollars it inevitably will make. And yeah, I like that it's still this artistic vision for where the story should go. Definitely. I really appreciate that she comes back to what George uh, found important with Star Wars, that he was actually trying to say something to people. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, whether that reaches out and connects with every single fan or not, it's important for them as the creators. And then once it's out there, people do with it what they will. Some of us find meaning, some of us don't. But um, yeah, I just appreciate that she's kind of bringing that to the foreground again that they yeah. are actually trying to say something with these movies. Obviously, they're also trying to make money. That's the bottom line. But in terms of the creative side of it, they are actually trying to do something. They're telling a story. Um, okay, cool. Then I'll read out the next one. Ryan Johnson made some controversial choices in episode eight, The Last Jedi, especially considering its dramatic purpose as the second movie in the trilogy, but you, to an extent, deliberately setting out to challenge fans and their expectations. Kathleen, we definitely did. We're talking all the time about how we move Star Wars forward and how we keep it relevant. Obviously, we don't want to keep making the same movie over and over again, so I agree with you. I mean, I love what Ryan did. It's an absolutely wonderful movie. I think he's an extraordinary filmmaker, and I really appreciated the bold moves that he did make. I think people forget that, especially when you're doing a trilogy structure. The first movie is setting things up, the second is usually the conflict, and the third is the resolution. So you're bound to have that second movie, much the same way Empire Strikes Back was probably the darkest and most dramatic of the three. We talked about it with Indiana Jones. You know, we did Raiders of the Lost Ark and then we did Temple of Doom, which was dark and created a lot of controversy. And people were surprised at where it went with the storytelling. But frankly, that's the whole point. And yeah, you own this answer, Kathleen. It's such a good answer. And... It just so lucidly expresses what the point of The Last Jedi was in relation to the wider trilogy. So, yeah, thank you for saying this, Kathleen. Yeah, I really appreciate that she stands behind Ryan's story. Um, Yeah. And, you know, it's her story too. Like, they were all a part of it and they're proud of it. Um, And they think it's a wonderful movie, as do we. Um, And she's trying to explain that... Yes, it faced backlash, but that's kind of the point of a second act of a story. It's supposed to take you in a way that you didn't expect, because otherwise what would be the point of a story if it gave you everything you could immediately see from the outset? Then it wouldn't challenge you or surprise you. It would be boring. Yeah. This kind of answer throws up a lot of interesting questions for the fandom to kind of chew over, because it's like, is it a success or is it a failure of the storytelling that so many people were caught off guard and so many people haven't known or figured out how they feel about The Last Jedi and how to respond in a way that isn't just harassing people on the internet because they're frustrated with how a story went. Um, And she does kind of, at this point, with people, if they keep asking these questions about, oh, it was really controversial, it was really subversive, 
it's kind of asking her to spell out, well, yes, it's a three-part storytelling structure. That's how they tend to go. Yeah. We'll just quickly skip to one final quote from Kathleen. So you truly haven't yet decided what's next. That's that's meaning in terms of future like Star Wars movies. And she says, no, we've got various things we're looking at in various ways in which we can begin or not. As you can imagine, you know, do you go back? Do you go forward? All those questions are being asked. Do you, do we stay in this galaxy? Do we go to another? The universe is never ending. The good news and the bad news. They have poss- they have endless possibilities. It's liberating. It's exciting. And it creates a lot of pressure and anxiety as well. So yeah, I'm, again, I like that she's so candied in her answers. Um, and a separate article from The Hollywood Reporter that we'll talk about in a moment suggests that she might be being a little bit secretive in this answer because it seems like things might be a bit more solid than this answer would indicate because there's talk of her having a director in place for the next movie. Um, But yeah, I like the acknowledgement of the benefits and disadvantages of having this wide open universe, essentially. What do you make of this? I think she's understandably being cautious because they're not ready to officially announce anything yet um Mm. but you're right there are obviously like strong rumors of something being announced over the next couple months in terms of who the director of the next movie will be uh which Mm. is still itself a way off but um suggests that they have things a little more organized but beyond that movie who knows so she might be talking more generally here it's like if they're still mapping out the next 10 years of star wars storytelling then she's being truthful yeah. Um, and there are, as she says, so many possibilities. You could do anything. So what do they want to do? Exactly. Okay, awesome. So the next thing that we're going to cover is we have a Hollywood Reporter article that basically exists to question Kathleen Kennedy's future with Lucasfilm. So could you talk generally about this article, Kirsty? So I think it grated with both of us to some extent because yeah it has a particular tone you could say um i didn't really know what to make of it to be honest it's it doesn't to me come from a completely neutral perspective i feel like and i don't know the guy who wrote it i don't really i'm not aware of him or what his perception of star wars is but there's like kind of this underlying assumption in the way that certain things are phrased. And I think this was true of the interview with JJ from Rolling Stone as well. Like, um, just the way that it will be presented as like, fans were really excited when they announced that Kevin Feige was going to make a Star Wars film. And it's like, well, you're talking about some fans there. There are other fans who are not happy with it. Or, or Kathleen Kennedy tells us that she's really happy working at Lucasfilm, but it's hard to see how that could be true. And it's like, well... Maybe if she stated something explicit to you, don't try and undermine that. It's mm. like you're clearly yep. going for an angle there. <laughs> Seems a little disingenuous. No, exactly. There's just lots of salty interviewers around, basically. And yeah, I don't have time for that nonsense. Not right now when there's so much good stuff happening. <laughs> um, yeah. So the first part that I wanted to talk about in this Hollywood Reporter article is... So with or without Kennedy, sources say it seems likely that Favreau will have a lot of say over the future of Star Wars. 
These sources also say Kennedy's ideal team includes key roles for Michelle Rejwan, a producer on episode 9 in Lucasfilm's Senior Vice President of Live Action Development and Production, and Dave Filoni, the veteran animation director and George Lucas' protégé, who directed live action for the first time with two episodes of The Mandalorian. Sources say Kennedy has a film on deck for 2022, but not the one being developed by The Last Jedi filmmaker Ryan Johnson. No announcement is planned until January. So yeah, that's the substance of the news in this article that we want to discuss, essentially. Yeah, it makes sense to me, to be honest. Um, like I think Kathleen Kennedy has more than earned the right to move on from Lucasfilm. She wants to, but equally, mm. if she feels she has more to do at Lucasfilm and wants to stay, I 100% support that because I really love what she's done with Lucasfilm since taking it over. Um, but yeah, if she does move on and this sort of team is left in place... I could see myself being happy with that, especially on the strength of The Mandalorian, because that's really helping me to trust Favreau's instincts in particular when it comes to Star Wars storytelling and the the priorities that should apply in Star Wars storytelling. How do you feel, Kirsty? Well, it's hard to know, to be honest, because I don't want to get ahead of myself. We only have three episodes of The Mandalorian, and while I love them, uh, it does seem like not too much to go on but yeah right now i'm kind of with you um i'm really impressed with them um i've been a little cautious just because i've always sorry to any big marvel fans out there i've said it before like i don't want star wars to become marvel and that can mean lots of things to lots of people but i think it's encouraging at least that they've said they're not going to just churn things out so we're not going to get the volume of marvel content at least from the films so that's a good thing. But obviously, John Favreau was instrumental in the kicking off of the MCU and obviously bringing in Kevin Feige as well. I'm, I'm like a little bit cautious of it, but maybe that's unfair of me. Mm. Um, in terms of whether Kathleen Kennedy stays or goes, even if she leaves, um, the team that is left behind, she will play a part in choosing that. Um, yeah. So it totally makes sense that these are the people who might be left um to really shape the future of star wars because obviously we know that she has a very close working relationship with dave filoni and really respects what he understands star wars to be um he's obviously had that mentorship over decades from george lucas himself um and she's presumably very impressed by what john Favreau has done so far and she's appointed michelle rajwan to that position so it doesn't surprise me that that name would be in there yeah um I guess I am just personally a little bummed that they've already said that that 2022 movie isn't Ryan's just because I'm kind of impatient for that but um, it depends who it is and I'm partly wondering if they'll announce the director as someone who has worked on The Mandalorian Mm. if it's yeah that would be interesting yeah if it's a name that we're already familiar with for Star Wars so that off the back of this series being so well received and they say oh and that person is going to go forward and direct this um, much in the same way they've done with Deborah Chow for Kenobi, um, yeah. people will kind of feel confident about that. Yeah. So I could see Rick Famuyiwa, like being a really good pick. So I thought episode two was really well directed. Mm. And yeah, like, and he's obviously done feature films before. So I think there's potential for him to be a candidate for that. But equally, we don't know what the other directors are going to bring. So yeah, any of them are potential candidates. Isn't Rick Famuyiwa directing that other story for Lucasfilm um the one that's adapting that 
that novel that came out recently. Oh, is that? Uh, oh, yeah, Children of Blood and Bone. You're yes, right. that's it. Yeah, yeah. No, he's on that project. Yeah, you're right. So yeah, that would seem to disqualify him from that. So yeah, we will see. But yeah, they have picked really good director talent so far for The Mandalorian. Um, yeah, especially on episodes two and three. Um, so yeah, there are exciting things in store, basically. And yeah, it's interesting. I think it makes complete sense to hold off any announcement until January because they don't want to distract from The Rise of Skywalker Oh right yeah, now. there's more so, than enough going on. Yeah, no, exactly. It would just, yeah, it's not needed. And yeah, let's focus on the story we're telling at the moment. Yeah, I also just think at this point they must have learned to be a bit more cautious with the director announcements. Given, yes. <laughs> and to be fair, some of the changes have been like as production has already started. Um, yes, but yeah, it's just become an unfortunate trend that I'm sure they don't want to continue. So, yeah, <laughs> it's not a good look for them, and you could tell from the way Kathleen Kennedy answered that first question about the Trevor situation that she's acutely aware of the optics of that, basically with the director changes, and there's very understandable, legitimate reasons why those changes have had to occur. But yeah, it's obviously not a situation anyone wants. Mm -hmm. So yeah, makes complete sense. Totally. So the final news story that we're going to talk about is that Colin Trevorrow has given Empire Magazine some insights into his version of episode nine. So yeah, we're just going to talk about two main quotes here because we've done one and a half hours of news. (laughs) We still need to discuss The Mandalorian. So we just want to charge ahead to that now, really. Thank you to anyone who's still listening. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, guys. Um, But yeah, the first quote. Bringing back the Emperor was an idea JJ brought to the table when he came on board, Trevorrow says. It's honestly something I never considered. I commend him for it. This was a tough story to unlock, and he found the key. I think this is nice. I think Colin's been a good sport about the situation. Like He doesn't sound bitter, although I'm sure he has privately very mixed feelings about the situation. But yeah, the most interesting thing, obviously, is Colin saying, oh, I didn't have the Emperor in mind at all. Um, because, yeah, like JJ and co have been saying that the Emperor was part of their vision from the beginning. But what I suggested to you, Kirsty, is that that was an idea that maybe JJ brought to the table back in 2013 and was part of his original concept but then it obviously got discarded as other filmmakers took over and he's now picking up on that idea again but is not necessarily something that Colin had any intention of using at all. Yeah well I was thinking about this in terms of like the development of Snoke as a character too and part of me wonders because the way that they had actually decided that Snoke would even look and how they would bring him to life that seemed to be pretty late in the game as well. Yeah. So part of me is actually wondering if that was the initial plan and then they changed their mind. And it is kind of in keeping with a lot of the concept art you see for The Force Awakens in terms of like Sunken Death Star and them swimming through the wreckage and stuff like that. But they dropped elements of that and then JJ has decided to bring them back. But the trilogy had gone in, di- in a different direction. Ryan obviously didn't pursue that kind of thing. And Trevorrow says himself, and I honestly don't really see a reason to not believe him that he wasn't going to go in that direction either but JJ kind of went back to that stuff so in in that way you're right they are all telling the truth to an extent that um, mm. Kathleen Kennedy and JJ can say truthfully it was an idea they had from the beginning but it's not necessarily the way things would have gone had Trevorrow made that last movie yes 
that to me makes a lot of sense in terms of there being very little if any foreshadowing in the force awakens of the last jedi about palpatine returning Mm. it gives me some peace of mind there because it's like oh it's you know it's okay to change your mind about the idea of a story direction um but and there's obviously stuff like the aftermath trilogy you can point at in terms of like fleshing out the, the concept of palpatine having that contingency plan and the empire yes falling but there being remnants of it and the first order how does that fit in um so it all ties together it's just not necessarily that was decided from the beginning and was understood as the force awakens and the last jedi were being made i think it's going to be really interesting to see if the rise of skywalker goes some way towards recontextualizing moments and lines and stuff from the earlier movies in much the same way that i am your father did to conversations in the original star wars for example because that conversation with like luke and luke's aunt and uncle for example, that gains completely new meaning once you understand that they're talking about Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. And that obviously wasn't intended when George Lucas was writing those lines, but that's what it came to mean, and it yeah. fit really well. It does work really well. <laughs> so it's going to be interesting to see if they can pull off anything like that, but we will see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's obviously parts of the original trilogy, and I'm looking at you, Luke and Leia, that <laughs> really didn't work in hindsight, but you can kind of brush over them. Um, yeah, but yeah, looking back at the Force Awakens and the Last Jedi, we, in terms of explicit Palpatine references, we get um, his voice is one of the voices that Rey hears in her vision, mm-hmm. and we get Luke talking about Darth Sidious um, coming to rise under the watch of the Jedi. Um, yep. But really, is that it? I feel like <laughs> it might be. There's not a lot there. I feel like that's the only direct, like, unequivocal stuff, yeah. Yeah, there's references to Vader elsewhere, but that's kind of in the context of Ben and the younger generation, like, there's too much Vader in him, that sort of thing. Um, You don't really get anyone like Han or Kylo Ren himself bringing up the Emperor, even Snoke doesn't, unless you point to the Last Jedi novelization. Yeah, that choral theme for Snoke is clearly an Emperor reference. (laughs) Snoke is the emperor. Well, exactly. That's what gave rise to those kind of theories. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, no. I'm just um, being silly. Um, Okay, awesome. So then final quote that we want to discuss from Trevorrow. And this is just more of a fun, a sidey thing. I just asked Ryan if he could include a little moment where Ray and Poe meet for the first time. He says, they're such beloved characters. It felt right for them to have some history in the next movie. I thought the way he did it was perfect. I'm Ray. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, like I'm being mean. That is quite a cute moment, really. <laughs> in the in the context of the Last Jedi, because obviously it's Ray nobody. It isn't that much of a nobody because people know who she is by reputation. So it's nice in that way. But yeah, I think we both agree that that moment feels really clumsy, despite that certain poeticism that I just acknowledged in the context of the rest of the Last Jedi. And yeah, I think this makes that makes so much more sense. What do you think, Kirsty? It does make a lot of sense. Uh, <laughs> I think the whole Ray and Poe thing is kind of a consequence. And just as we were talking about, there are some things that fit really well when you're doing a trilogy and others that kind of suffer for it, if, especially if you have different filmmakers working on it. Um, because 
Of course, in The Force Awakens, Rey and Poe never really meet, even though, weirdly, at the end of the movie, uh, they are technically in the same room together. Because um, Rey brings Finn off the Falcon, or Chewie does anyway, and then Poe kind of runs away, but looks back at Rey, and then they, they're they later in the room looking at the map, uh, and then she leaves and she's talking to Leia, but there's not really an acknowledgement from Poe, even though he's part of the crowd. And then, yeah, they they have to then go ahead with this awkward meeting at the end of The Last Jedi, even though there is pretty much this exact same scene in The Force Awakens novelization. <laughs> yeah. So you get the sense that it was something that maybe JJ considered doing and then cut because it wasn't essential. And then we got it again because it's like, oh, these are two of our leads and they still haven't met. Uh, <laughs> Damn. We're two thirds into the story. We should probably get on that. It just makes it funny in the context of seeing the rise of Skywalker's promotion and them quite heavily pushing, at least for characters like Poe, Finn and Rey, that the trio is back together again. Uh, <laughs> this is the only scene that they've shared and you've never seen them on screen together as a as a trio. Um, yeah. So it rings a little false for me, but this this quote makes sense. <laughs> Yeah. Um, it's like trio what trio <laughs> yeah and you wonder uh, then if if Colin Trevorrow requested this from Ryan does that mean that Ryan didn't intend for them to meet either yeah it certainly doesn't feel like a natural fit with the rest of the script and the rest of that end scene which does all feel very cohesive yeah I mean we'll see how they evolve that friendship or whatever you call it in the next movie yes um, I and they've kind of alluded to this in certain interviews that they will clash a little bit. And while you you kind of expect that between friends sometimes that they'll argue and debate stuff, um, I do think it is going to be a little more serious between Ray and Poe. Yeah. That there's going to be this, like, quite different perspectives that they have on things. Yeah. I really hope to see some internal clashes within the Resistance members. And I feel like we're probably going to get that based on the sorts of things that we've been hearing. Like Daisy making the comment like, um, oh, I don't follow any anyone's orders and stuff. Because, yeah, presumably Poe is one of the types of people who would be issuing orders, given that he's quite senior in the resistance. And, yeah, I like the idea of Ray being like, nah, rather not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I find it easier to imagine her doing that to him as opposed to Leia who she clearly like respects and has affection for someone yeah. like Poe who's like a peer almost I think she might struggle <laughs> yeah I think there's gonna be nice fun tension there okay cool so this is the point where finally we have climbed that news mountain <laughs> and we have reached the point of being able to talk about the Mandalorian which I'm so happy because it's such a fantastic episode. So I'm very excited to talk about it. So yeah, what is your broad review of The Mandalorian Chapter 3, The Sin? Oh, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, really impressed with what Deborah Chow did here. Um, feels like the natural um, third part to what we'd already seen. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of it was kind of in line with our speculation. Um, but not in a way that seemed like boring or redundant or, or too predictable, just um, felt right for what they were setting up with the character and the themes of the story. Yeah. 
Again, it's a very simple story that they're telling, but it feels so right and inevitable that, yeah, it just adds to that mythic quality that Werner Herzog keeps talking about when he's interviewed about the show. And yeah, I think it's so right. So I think the simplicity of the storytelling is one of the assets rather than like a problem with it. Yeah, it's interesting because I've seen some people critique it by saying that it's not really taking risks. Favreau isn't taking risks with the writing. Mm. Um, I understand that on one level in terms of what you're saying about it being very simple. It's obviously like a classic story of someone finding a child and protecting them um, and changing the course of their life as a result, finding that meaning. Um, but in terms of what people's perceptions were going in of what this cool badass bounty hunter was going to be, I think it actually has been quite bold. Oh yeah, absolutely. This is basically about a person who should be completely hard, completely unemotional, completely unaffected, given into sentimentality and like caring for this like helpless little creature. And I feel like there's something really beautiful in that. It's, yeah, of course, as a baby, it's a really cute baby. You have sympathy for it. You have affection for it. But that's not a story you see told too often. Usually it's more like almost nihilistic stories where it's someone having that aspect of themselves snuffed out or destroyed. I feel like seeing that like aspect of a person ignited and nurtured, that's really quite wonderful. And yeah, it's lovely to see. Yeah, it feels very Star Wars to me. And even though I'm not super knowledgeable in terms of... You know, I've watched The Clone Wars and Rebels, but in terms of the Mandalorians as a people and their history... And clearly a lot has happened in the space between. Like, they've kind of set up what's going on with the Mandalorians now. It's like, oh, God, what happened, you know, uh, while the Empire was there? What what has happened to these people that's changed their lives so much? Um, but I do think they're saying... kind of like what we were saying last week I feel like there's a lot of commentary here on these notions of masculinity um, on you know no man is an island that kind of thing um, that feel very Star Wars and are kind of cleverly appealing to people who like Star Wars for certain aspects and then surprising them by bringing in other aspects that might resonate with them more clearly here um where they haven't elsewhere so successfully so you know i've seen a lot of like oh some fans really didn't like the last jedi but luckily the mandalorian's there for them and maybe that's initially what i first thought like the mandalorian's going to appeal to people um in a way that it might not appeal to me but Mm. it appeals to me almost just as much as the sequel trilogy has because it's telling a similar story in just a different way yes um but i'm hoping that this way it will reach more people in a way that the sequel trilogy might not have succeeded with those people which is fantastic you know yeah absolutely it's a bit of a trojan horse type thing isn't yeah it? <laughs> <laughs> like what is doing with the storytelling it's like oh you want a story about a really cool badass bounty hunter here it is and he still is that's the, that's the beauty of it he is still showing all of those you know the traditional um you know the, the kick-ass action scenes they're there yeah the character is competent if that's what matters to you but there's also this emotional heart to it yeah exactly and that's what's being smuggled in essentially because if they'd promoted it is oh look at him what a big softy that creates a different vibe and yeah so i think it's a really clever approach to it mm-hmm. um yeah so i'm not sure we should necessarily go through it like beat by beat but yeah we can definitely talk about the key developments and 
like the parts of the story that stood out to us the most. Um, so yeah, obviously it starts out with him taking Baby Yoda back to the client. Um, and oh, and yeah, important in this episode, we find out that Baby Yoda is male, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> I was a little bit disappointed by that. Yeah, it's not a huge deal, obviously, but uh, would have been kind of funny in terms of like the Mary Sue aspect that is so prevalent with the discussion around Ray and her amazing powers. Like, well, this is a baby. Yeah, exactly. And just give us our second female character in the Mandalorian, please, because mm. right now we just have the blacksmith. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I felt everything involving the Mandalorian taking the baby to the client was absolutely heartbreaking it was and yeah i thought it was so well done from a directing standpoint in terms of how deborah chow framed it around the baby's perspective of things Mm -hmm. and yes of course you already empathize with the creature so much because of the good work done in the previous episodes but the beginning of this episode just took it to another level because you see all that fear creeping in in his little face and oh god it just broke my heart yeah it's so expressive and i think you were saying last week that you expected that moment to be heartbreaking when he is wheeled away and you (laughs) hear him start crying um, (laughs) and looking back at the mandalorian imploringly like almost betrayed um yeah because he he did trust him to care for him um god yeah Ooh, very well done um, and I also think it's interesting that this um, episode is called The Sin because yeah. it's like, okay, is The Sin him giving the baby over or is it going back to get the baby? Kind of depends yeah. on your perspective or like which character you're talking about um, because the notion from the other bounty hunters and is it Grief, the Carl Weber's character? Is that what he's called? Yeah, he's still Carl in my notes. <laughs> yeah. I think he's actually Grief, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, he's like, you broke the code. And so is Werner Herzog's character as well. Like, there's this understanding that so far the Mandalorian has been a complete professional. He's never asked questions. He just does the job and goes on to the next one and earns his keep. Um, but this throws all of that away and he's asking questions because he cares now, even though he yeah. knows it's against the code. And that's what gives way to this real um, moral event for him that he's like, he has this dilemma and then makes a choice and it yeah to me it's interesting um looking at the title um because i think like that can refer to a number of things yeah i think it's very loaded if you look at sin as a religious concept it's something that you even need to be absolved of so you can move forward in a purified state or you pay a price for Mm. essentially so there's always a cost of sin um and yeah i think it works on both levels because in the story you see him committing the sin by handing the baby over and he then absolves himself effectively of that sin by going back to rescue the child and taking it into his care so that's it balanced out but then for grief cargo and all the other bounty hunters the sin is the mandalorian's betrayal of them and betrayal of the code etc etc and then I think we're going to see vengeance for that play out over the course of the rest of the season. Yeah, I think what's been so well done is that I think last week you were talking about um, the Carl Weber's character and how um, reasonable and almost like they had almost this camaraderie that he was like looking out for the Mandalorian and like encouraging him to take these more interesting job- jobs and, you know, clearly saw him as a very competent um, ally almost or 
I don't know, employee, if that's the term. Sure, but like yeah. that that has been betrayed from his perspective. And because he was established so well, you don't see him as a bad guy now, even now he's against the protagonist. He sees himself as wronged because the Mandalorian made this choice and he's gone against the code, um, which they all understood as the way things should work. So from his perspective, the Mandalorian is the bad guy now. Yeah. Exactly. And I also thought it was interesting how they sort of juxtapose the Bounty Hunters Guild and their code of operation, along with the Mandalorian culture and the sort of code of ethics that they adhere to. Mm -hmm. Because at the end, they obviously come out in support of the Mandalorian, and he's clearly behaving in a way that is to them honourable, because they're prepared to back him up. And... Yeah, I think there's going to be lots of that in terms of people having these philosophies and which philosophies are noble, which are ignoble, and yeah. Yeah, kind of that repetition of this is the way that they say. Uh, that The question naturally raised there is, does it have to be? Will it always be this way? Yeah. Um, yeah, um, if this episode was really great as well at kind of introducing you more to the context of what's happened to the Mandalorians and the way they're living now, which is at such a contrast from what we've seen in the animation. Um, and you just feel really sad for them. This idea of them living underground and only being able to go out one at a time and that resentment that the other Mandalorians feel and then the disdain that they feel when they realise that that Beskar steel has come from the Empire, which is the reason that they live this way. Yeah. And the, the sacrifice that they make at the end when they do come out in support of him, that means that they can no longer live safely where they are. They have to find somewhere else now. But they did what they believed was right. Yeah, exactly. I felt like all the Mandalorian stuff was handled much better in this episode than in the first one. And I don't mean to like poo-poo what Dave Filoni did in that episode. And it's also just about the story developing more at this point and there being more detail to those interactions. But yeah, I just felt it was really well handled. And yeah, it was interesting to see all those resentments bubbling over. I also found it significant that ultimately the blacksmith was the voice of reason mm. in the dispute because you had these two like big manly men facing <laughs> off in their armor and clearly come into fisticuffs. And then she had to step in and be like, no, 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 we're not doing this right now. Yeah, I love her calm sense of authority and confidence. She's a really interesting character. I don't know how much more we'll get of her. Yeah. Um, especially now the rest of the Mandalorians will have to move. I don't know how much contact he'll have with them now. But um, yeah, I really like that. Yes, we've said there has been much discussion about so far there are very few female characters. Um, but the one that we do have um, really does seem to have this respect within the community. Um, she's listened to when she steps in and like tries to rate things up. Um, she is introducing a lot of the concepts like you know have you chosen your signet um, that kind of thing and she as the armorer she's giving him the tools to then go back and, and rescue the baby and be safe and defend him um, yeah so I think there's a lot there yeah and whistling birds are just the coolest like when that was first mentioned I was like what the hell is this could you stop talking in riddles please um <laughs> But yeah, then it happened and they were used and I was like, oh, damn, that's cool. <laughs> so I think we both had this thing where we're not normally big action people. 
the action was so well done and so confidently executed in this episode that it was just a pleasure to watch. It was. It was really clear. You could follow what was happening. Things were clearly foreshadowed from earlier on. Like you say, the whistling birds were introduced as a concept. Uh, you saw her installing them and then you saw him later using them. Um, and she said, like, use them sparingly. Uh, and to be fair, I think he only used four because there were four stormtroopers surrounding him. And I think she installed f- quite a few more. So yeah. it's not like he used them all up on the same day, but it was like when she put them in, I was like, oh God, I think he's going to need those. <laughs> Yeah, it's very, very useful. Let's put it that way. Yeah. If I were him, I'd probably go around to each body afterwards and pick them all out so I could <laughs> use them again. But it probably doesn't work like that. I think he had to get out of there in a hurry. Yeah, I think that's true. They served him well. To backtrack slightly, um, I must give kudos to Werner Herzog for how he looked at that baby Yoda <laughs> when the Mandalorian brings it back to him. He just looks like he's feasting on that mm-hmm. thing without actually eating. And all I could think about was that real quote he gave about seeing the baby odor and it being heartbreakingly beautiful, <laughs> which I love because the thing is, like Werner Herzog says these things with what seems like absolute conviction and sincerity every time. And he's always like very high-minded in everything he says and he's very effusive in how he expresses himself and I think nothing deserves Werner Herzog more than this baby Yoda does yeah I just think it must have been absolutely surreal for Deborah Chow to direct (laughs) baby Yoda and Werner fucking Herzog (laughs) I really want the b-roll from it basically (laughs) I want the b-roll from it super hard (laughs) Um, and of course we got Will Hood's infamous ice cream machine oh did you wow. see that i did not notice that <gasps> no you're so observant well i remembered it from the behind the scenes i think john favreau posted on instagram like during production and mm-hmm. we were like yeah yeah whatever i think at that time actually we didn't even know who will Rohood was <laughs> like i i knew about the ice cream machine i'd seen the run at celebration that all the cosplayers do <laughs> but actually seeing it <laughs> we didn't educate ourselves sufficiently well, of course, like every Star Wars background character has a name, right? So we should have known better. But yeah. actually seeing it in this, it was such it was a pretty good Easter egg as Easter eggs go, because if you didn't know about that, it wouldn't have impacted your enjoyment of the story or anything. It was just like a little nod to something that has like taken on a life of its own in the Star Wars fandom. Yeah. So where did the ice cream machine appear in the episode? It was what was housing the Beskar steel that he handed over. So when he, he put oh. it on the table and then took uh, those panels uh, went away so he could see the steel. And then it's what the Mandalorian takes away. He's carrying it in. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So maybe that completely recontextualizes Wilmer Hood then. Maybe he had Beskar still in there. Maybe. So- something yeah. precious. Yeah. <laughs> It wasn't just his ice cream maker. (laughs) I don't think it's ever been presented as an ice cream maker in universe. But it turns out it's just a storage. It's just a box. You can put anything in there. So, But can you imagine that you're on Bespin, you get the evacuation order from Lando and you look around your house frantically for what you're going to take with you and you're like, oh God, the ice cream maker. (laughs) He's in the middle of making a batch of rum and raisin. And he's like... I can't leave it behind. <laughs> it's Lando's favourite. <laughs> He'll thank me later. Oh. It's amazing. 
Yeah, and there's lots of heartbreaking moments in this episode, just little things like the Mandalorian finding the baby's crib in the oh dumpster. Oh my god, that was devastating. <laughs> they do it so well, the way they like zoom in on his, well, not face, helmet, yeah. but you can like feel the emotion. Yeah. So that's, that's a combination of the direction, like the, you know, the actual camera work, but also the way that Pedro uses his body language to, to tell the emotions and motivations of the character. It's just incredible. So. Yeah. No, it's so well done. And in a way, the fact that it is just that blank helmet, that can be kind of beneficial because you can feel all the emotion that you need, mostly from the context mm-hmm. and especially from the music. The music is so emotive and so well done. It really is. In this is. episode in particular, that that told me all I needed to know about how anyone was feeling at any particular point. The music has just been on a loop in my head like the last week. <laughs> I'm constantly <laughs> humming it to myself. It's amazing. Yeah. I really want to try and get hold of the soundtrack, actually. It's just... It's all on Spotify. I don't know if you use that. I do. Yeah. No, I need to. I, I think I have a Spotify account, but I almost never use it. So, okay. yeah, I need to work on that. Um, and, yeah, so obviously you have this situation where all of the assembled bounty hunters in this town realise that the Mandalorian has betrayed them. And there's this huge, like, shootout scene, basically, where everyone is trying to get him. And, yeah, the Mandalorian escapes thanks to the help of his Mandalorian friends. And there's that final face-off between the Mandalorian and Grief Karga. And I feel like that's going to be very important for the show going forward because Grief is very clearly now going to be a man for grudge. Would you agree with that? Uh, Yeah, I think so. I mean, <laughs> the Mandalorian did shoot him. <laughs> and he was only saved by that Beskar steel. Um, yeah. Which, I mean, obviously we knew that, you know, they, they really set things up well because he pulled it out of his pocket earlier and he was like, even I'm rich. And he just had two of the slabs. So the fact that the Mandalorian got that entire new set of armor, that's incredibly valuable. Yes. So that's the thing. The payment here is not to be sniffed at. And, you know, Werner Herzog says that earlier. He's like, we've had commission and payment. This goes against the code. You're not supposed to ask. And grief is echoing the same thing. Um, so... The stakes are high here. The Mandalorian has been handsomely paid, but that's not what matters to him anymore. The the armor yeah. really does matter to them as a culture, but even more at this point, it's the child that matters to him. So. Yeah, exactly. And I was thinking that they're doing something very deliberate in showing these flashbacks to the Mandalorian himself as a child, when he's suddenly being struck so much by his connection to this baby. And like the duty of care he feels towards this child basically Mm. because i do think there's going to be an element of identification with the baby and the baby's helplessness because yeah you have that whole idea of him being put down this hole by his parents and that's obviously done to protect him but what happened to him next so i think it's going to be very significant about there's that there's that droid that's standing over the hatch clearly Mm. prepared to kill the child and someone presumably comes in and saves the Mandalorian. And I think that's going to turn out to be a huge inspiration for what the Mandalorian does for this baby. I think so. I think the statement, the foundlings of the future, that's going to be key to this series in kind of the same way that Rose's last line in The Last Jedi is, or Law Santeca's at the beginning of The Force Awakens. It really kind of lays things out. Yeah. 
Um, and yeah, I think that does fold in really well to the way that the Mandalorians are talking about what happened to them, the spoils of the Great Purge. Um, I think, you know, it is kind of like tied up with what happened to the Jedi, obviously, but it's the ongoing ramifications of the Empire um, and how much suffering and displacing it's caused. Yeah. Another thing that I found really interesting was when the Mandalorian was talking to the Armourer, um, she was asking about his signet and how it should be the Mudhorn because that was um, the animal that he defeated. And he, he said it wasn't a fair battle um, because I was working with an enemy who didn't know he was my enemy at the time. But I think it's more like he doesn't really know what to make of what the baby did in terms of pre- protecting him with the Force or yeah. doesn't want to reveal that information to anyone else. Yeah. And I think it's a really complex thing as well because I'm... I don't think it's necessarily just about what the baby did for him either. I like to think that part of him is reflecting on the sort of stuff that we were saying last week, where he recognises it's dishonourable to kill, like, that mother, like, for its egg, Mm -hmm. basically. And, yeah, just, it was quite brutal, that whole, like, killing of the creature. And there was no mercy, there was no compassion in that case, even though he was just going in and taking what he wanted with no heed to the creature. And yeah, I think it's all going to come around in a big way in terms of him recognising the ramifications of his actions. Mm -hmm. What did you think about the reference to the Twi'lek healing place? Oh my god. Oh my god. (laughs) Um... I appreciated that as world building and I think I actually have it in my notes because I would actually, this would never happen in a million years, but I would be totally down for a series where the hero is one of the girls who works in a twilight healing like parlor or whatever it is and she's like having to like break out on her own and escape this oppression of indentured servitude. I'd be totally I would down for that. absolutely love that for the character of Ula. The Return of the yeah. Jedi, who was treated so badly. Yeah, justice for Ula. Exactly. But yeah, I, I found it interesting in the context of the conversation because it's obviously grief trying to celebrate with Mando and <laughs> say, job well done, like, let's go and enjoy it. Um, the Mandalorian isn't interested. Yep. <laughs> He's only concerned at this point about what's happening to Baby Yoda. Um, yeah. Not not interested in any, any ladies. Not interested in the pleasures of the flesh. Which I think obviously says something about him as a character. Yeah. No, he's a very moral, upstanding chap and he's not interested in that sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. It kind of goes hand in hand with the perception of him as like this loner, right? Yeah, yeah. Never takes the helmet off. He's never removed it. No one else has removed it. It's like, okay, they're really piling it on thick so that when it's taken off later, that's a huge moment. Yeah, I know this is a dumb observation that's very obvious, but I do also have the eternal question of how does he eat? (laughs) Or brush his teeth. (laughs) It's like, what's going on? I mean, realistically, surely what they mean is you've never taken it off in a place where anyone would see you, but presumably (laughs) when you're sleeping at night, you don't sleep with the helmet on. You'd really like to think so, wouldn't you? Because again, this is different. We saw Sabine's face all the time in Rebels. So it's not something that has always been fundamental to the Mandalorians, or at least to all of them. So here, especially, you're getting the sense that 
I mean, presumably these aren't the only Mandalorians left in the galaxy. So it's like a tribe or a clan. I think they talk, call them a tribe. Um, yeah, they could be like the Quakers of Mandalorians. I mean, yeah, maybe they all have their different um, values and customs at this point. Yeah, exactly. It's a really cool episode and it makes me really excited to see what's going to happen next because mm. we're presumably leaving that town behind, if not for good, at least for a while. And yeah, I'm excited to see different planets and new characters because we know Cara Dune's coming up. I think she's in the next episode, right? Yeah. That's what yeah. we heard. Um, so that'll be awesome. Also, at the end, God, I loved how they used the, the little ball that was attached to that... Um, Thing on the ship that like initially Yoda took it off and started playing with it and he was like that's not a toy and then when he gets him back he gives it to him to play yeah. with. Yeah. He's like an indulgent dad isn't he? So He's cute. like my child. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. It's just he's such an amazing adorable precious little guy. Like I'm scrolling mindlessly through Twitter and there's just like a clip on repeat of like the baby like looking at the Mandalorian and sort of like smiling and perking its ears Aww. up <laughs> yeah wow there's also some interesting contextualizing on like a grander level for the galaxy um in the conversation where he's like well they're working for the empire so obviously they're not they don't want that baby for good reasons and uh grief is like the empire's gone and i shouted at the screen no one's ever really gone <laughs> Nice. Well, they would probably prefer it if they were gone. <laughs> what are the context of Palpatine returning, you know? Yeah. No, exactly. And yeah, that makes me really excited for subsequent seasons of the show as well. Mm. Because whatever Palpatine is doing in The Rise of Skywalker, it would be really awesome to see like early developments in that master plan happening in a show like The Mandalorian. Yeah. So, yeah, there's lots of potential. Who knows? Maybe Palpatine wants Baby Yoda. Anything's possible. Well, yeah. I mean, because isn't you know when he uses the the fork as like the to pick up the frequency of um, Werner Herzog's character and the scientist talking about Yoda like inside the building? Um, don't they refer to a he or like you, you've got to hurry up? I can only protect you so long and that kind of thing. Like it's the idea yeah. of that. Obviously, Herzog is not the end point here. Someone else asked him to get this creature. Yeah, is that Palpatine or it's someone else? I did actually transcribe what I heard. So okay. I doubt this is completely right, but I got, I don't care, extract the necessary material and be done with it, that that being Herzog. And then there's like static. So he's clearly identifying someone. Right. Um, and this is the doctor. And he says, explicitly ordered us to bring it back alive. And then finally back to Herzog. Then finish quickly. I can no longer guarantee your safety. Hmm. So yeah, that's a very interesting conversation. And you also have the Doctor later on, like, thinking that when the Mandalorian bursts in, he believes that the Mandalorian is there to kill the baby. Right. It doesn't cross his mind that the Mandalorian's there to save it. And he's of the stance that, no, I've been trying to look out for this child and save it in all this. And, yeah, it's just so interesting, all these motives, because it's deliberately unclear at the moment. We're not meant to understand what's going on and why people want this baby. And beyond it, obviously, being very powerful in the Force, that clearly has something to do with it. But, yeah, for whatever the plan is... The midichlorians. With... Oh, God, yeah. Well, I do think, honestly, like, when you're talking about someone being strong with the Force, that's what we're talking about. Oh, yeah. As no, definitely. Yeah. It's, 
this species is obviously strong with midichlorians. So it would be nice to hear the word midichlorians. Oh my actually. god, wouldn't it? I would love it. Bring it back. His midichlorian count is higher than even Master Yoda's. Yeah. Oh, the other thing I wanted to point out, going back to that conversation when he says the Empire is gone, he suggests taking it to the New Republic and the Mandalorian scoffs like that's a joke. Um, oh yeah, that's really funny. Yeah. Clearly has no love for the New Republic. So I, th- I think this was kind of a set out in um, you know aftermath and this notion of, yes, okay, the Empire has gone and then they had to construct something new in its place. But if are people taking it seriously? Or are people just kind of trying to get on with their lives and everything's a bit like every man out for himself? Because, um, yeah, even flashing forward to Bloodline and what Leia was trying to put together with... There were a lot of factions and disagreements and that uncertainty uh, kind of let the First Order rise in its place. Yeah. Exactly. You can just tell there's no faith in the New Republic to actually be a successful government. And that's kind of like the crux of the plot and bloodline. These factions like duking it out because there's no trust. Yeah, it's yeah. just crushing really because that's like what they were fighting for. Yeah, it's like, well, then how are we ever going to establish a working democracy in this galaxy? <laughs> it's a bit, yeah, worrying. Maybe that kind of thing is addressed to some extent in The Rise of Skywalker, but so much of it seems to focus on the war itself that are we going to kind of fall into that same trap of like okay so what's next yeah god the politics of star wars <laughs> you'd hope and you know they're, they're kind of having to walk a tightrope here because some of the criticism of the prequels is that it was too political or too heavy um on that stuff but then Really, it's Star Wars, and if the war is supposedly coming to an end as part of this nine-part saga, what do we have as its legacy? What's left in its place that's so much better? Um, We have this concept of balance. I'm not even talking about The Mandalorian anymore. I know I'm wildly off topic, but it's just what that exchange between them reminded me of. It's like, how are they going to resolve that aspect in a satisfying way for episode nine? Um, Or is the galaxy kind of doomed to have this conflict forever? Yeah, it's always going to be political Groundhog Day, basically. Mm. Okay, cool, awesome. Are we done with the Mandalorian for this time? Um, I guess so. I feel like there's always so much to say. It's just we're running really late now. Yeah, so. no, it's yeah. true. In general, we were incredibly impressed. Uh, really excited now to see Deborah's work on Kenobi. Oh, Not that God, I wasn't yeah. before, but like now we have something tangible to point to. It's like, wow, she did a really great job here. So, yeah, I think. Like Rick Famuyiwa in particular did a really great job on episode two, but this just takes it to another level in my opinion. It's really fantastic in how it's directed, and yeah, it's just so there's so much confidence and assurance in the direction. Yeah, I'm really excited, especially because she'll be telling like the whole story with Obi Wan because it's her as the sole director. So yeah, I think she'll really be able to express her creativity through that. Absolutely. So can't wait to hear more about that. Yep, exactly. Very exciting. Um, okay, awesome. So then, very finally, before we get to some very, very final questions, um, we're just going to give a quick review of the latest episode of Resistance. Um, was it Relic Raiders, Kirsty, the title? I think it was that. I think so. Yeah, let's say it was Relic Raiders. 
Um, but yeah, Kaz, Tora, and then one of the aces. Freya. Freya thank you. <laughs> oh my God, what's wrong with me? No, it's okay. She's a minor character so far. Yeah. They go to this planet for, on a supply run, basically, and they come across an old temple to the Force. And yeah, it's really cool, actually, this episode, because there's still no Tam, which is a major problem, because we both want more Tam. We got the children from Tahar. Yeah, we got the children from Tahar because that's what they're called. They don't actually have individual names. <laughs> well, they, do, they do, I just can't remember them. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> Terrible. Um, but yeah, there was some really cool interest in Force lore in this episode that made it feel really refreshing because last week's episode felt like filler to me, but this one did not because of the Force stuff it had going on. Yeah, there was a lot of interesting Force stuff that I believe it's being heavily hinted will play into The Rise of Skywalker in terms of like the First Order and that's Kylo as the Supreme yeah. Leader hunting down these Sith artifacts and stuff the shame for me I enjoyed the episode but I think the main takeaway unfortunately for me was how maddening it was to watch Kaz oh god yeah it was horrible yeah it was like the first few episodes of season one but taken to a whole new level where it was like what the hell is wrong with this character and I love Kaz usually and I think it's perfectly okay for characters to show a level of incompetency I don't have i don't need them all to be perfect but it yeah. was on another level to the point where it was like okay this is kind of ridiculous and uh just what is this character doing because he's supposed to have an awful lot of responsibility here and he's making every wrong possible choice and even at the end doesn't seem to be that bothered by it doesn't seem to want to recognize the impact of his actions or show responsibility or remorse it was just really bad <laughs> Yeah, And obviously it was all intentional, so it's not like a flaw in the storytelling. It was just like really distracting to me. Yeah. And for me, like it was a choice, but I wish they made a different choice with Kaz. It seemed like a step back. Yeah, no, exactly. I felt like it undermined him, if anything, as a character. And yeah, like it just made me like really angry with him. I was like, oh, come on, because he was actively endangering other people through so much of this episode and yeah it just drove me crazy and i identified so much with this new character mika who was there to like retrieve the dark side relic essentially um because she was just totally over with it from the moment kaz entered the scene for her and i was like yeah i'm with you woman i'm totally with you because he is just being a prat yeah he was just being a moron like and you know she was there to get something done and yes overall the fact that Kaz went in there and made the mistake meant that eventually she was rescued but it was like he was incapable of listening to her following her advice um watching that as a woman was like oh my god (laughs) please just listen to what I'm telling you (laughs) but he wasn't Uh... Um, and they suffered the consequences of that um yeah I really liked her as a character don't know how much more we'll see of her obviously but um she kind of reminded me about of Maz in the way that she was talking about the force and talking to the children from Tahar and um again expanding our understanding of the force beyond the Jedi and Sith that it resides in all of us and yeah. expresses itself through all of us differently yeah um I say us like we're in the in the universe <laughs> but you we know basically what I say. are at this point <laughs> <laughs> no 
Um, yeah, no, I agree with you. She was a really interesting character. And I like that she was basically echoing a lot of the sentiments that Luke had in The Last Jedi. Stuff about the Force not belonging to any particular group or faction. Because, yeah, I feel like that can't be stated enough. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, unfortunately, another takeaway from the episode for me was that, again, we had no Tam. Mm. Um, it didn't bother me as much this time because it's way less of a filler episode than the previous one was. But now it has yeah. been like four weeks without us seeing her. So I'm just kind of impatient. Yeah. Luckily, I know for a fact we're getting her in the next episode because we've had promo images that literally show yeah. she's in the episode. So. I'm relieved, but yeah, it has taken a while and I've missed her, so I'm really glad she's making a return. Yeah, because of that, I now have really high hopes for the next one, which I don't want to have, because if you have high expectations, it makes it more likely that you'll feel let down. Yeah, um, But exactly. yeah, ho- hopefully it's a good one. So Yeah, definitely. I also found it interesting in this episode that Mika was clearly out to remove the relic before someone else could get it. Mm -hmm. And that someone else is clearly very specifically Kylo Ren (laughs) um, because she trash talks the Supreme Leader. Um, And yeah, I like that because there was a StarWars.com article tying into this episode and that explicitly stated that part of episode 9 will be Kylo being on quests for these relics and stuff and yeah I'm very intrigued by what the hell that's all about because I don't think Kylo's just getting these things to put them on a collector's shelf and never do anything with them essentially it's like what is your end game Kylo why are you doing this Mm -hmm. is this how we get Palpatine back he kind of unleashes him (laughs) through his idiocy (sighs) I think Kylo and Kaz are going to have more in common than we'd like them to have <laughs> in parallels. common, to be honest. <laughs> the poetry, it rhymes. Um, yeah, one thing to note, kind of based on our discussion last week of Resistance Reborn, because there was a snake symbol in that story, and I was kind of speculating as to how that might play into episode nine with that group called The Collective. Um, mm. We got more snake symbolism here. Um, we got the triangles being important as well so i'm just like yeah what's kind of like a a dark side symbol or what do they call it because we had this the sith temple obviously underneath the jedi one which is a pretty common thing we we have that even with the coruscant um jedi temple yeah um but yeah on the in this article on from starwars.com it's talking about the triangle symbol which symbolizes a pinnacle of power above a lowly base so I wonder if we'll see more of that in The Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, it would be really cool to tie the things in together in that way. So, yeah, hopefully Pablo raised his hands in meetings and was like, oh, could we put in these symbols into the sets, please? (laughs) I'm sure that's exactly how Pablo Hidalgo sounds. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um, Okay, awesome. So... The next thing, and the final thing, because, yep, we're going to round this baby out at two and a half hours, is we have two listener questions that we just wanted to address very quickly. So I'll read out the first one that came in over email from Bonnie. And she said, Hi, Rachel and Kirsty. I love listening to your podcast. I think you two have some really intelligent and well-articulated conversations about Star Wars. I love listening to episodes, even older ones, to help pass the time at work or driving home. Oh, thank you. That's really nice. Anyway, I had a question for you and would love to know your thoughts. Do you think the rumoured MacGuffin could be Vader's helmet? 
I'm wondering this because of the shots of Ray and Kylo destroying it in the trailer and the shot of Ray looking at it reverently in, the re- in reverently in the recent TV spot. But if it is, what could make it so important that both sides want it? Thanks again for such wonderful discussions. What do you think, Kirsty? Do you think it's a MacGuffin? Um, I hadn't really thought about the MacGuffin lately, to be honest. Yeah, it's kind of vanished from the discourse, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. So I do think it's it's one of these maybe weird Star Wars things where like you feel like they, uh, Kylo shouldn't really have the Vader helmet still at this point, but he somehow does. Mm. Um. I mean, I do think it's going to play into the story, obviously. We've seen it, but I'm not sure if it's going to be revealed that it like contains some secret power or something. I guess it could, because that feeds into some kind of stuff about um, masks imbued with dark side powers from things like Aftermath. But uh, I know there's been speculation that like the fact that Kylo's been hearing, supposedly, or communing somehow with his grandfather through the helmet, it could turn out... I don't know from The Force Awakens, people were speculating that it could have secretly been Snoke getting to him through that, but now people are saying maybe it was Palpatine. So yeah. that, that could come up in some way. I'm just not sure about its overall role in the story. Yeah, no, I think that's a great answer. Um, my bet would be probably against it being the MacGuffin, um, because I think whatever the MacGuffin is, I think they're likely to be keeping that a bit under wraps because they haven't been giving us any real tangible plot information on the story. So, and yeah, they've been showing the Vader helmet like bit, like nobody's business. So I think the actual MacGuffin is going to be a bit more of a secret. I thought the MacGuffin might relate to why they're on Pasana. So yeah, it wouldn't be the helmet if that was the case, right? Yeah. No, you also exactly. get the sense that Kylo's looking for it as much as Rey is, so Kylo already has the helmet. Yeah. No, so it's something they have yet to obtain, essentially. So, yeah. We don't think it's the Vader helmet, but at the same time, we definitely think the Vader helmet is going to be really important to the story, especially on a thematic level. Um, that whole idea of this new generation dealing with the sins of the past, etc., etc. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's going to play a big role. Um, yeah, and then the other thing we wanted to discuss is someone on Twitter like was asking about how we met Kirsty. Is that right? Yeah, it was our listener Josh. Uh, I couldn't find the exact tweets again. Sorry, um, but he was asking if we grew up together, uh, watching the movies, like how long we've known each other. Um, yeah, how we met and why we started the show. I guess. So thanks for asking. Yeah, yeah no, um, thank you. I guess it's nice actually that people think we might have grown up together because. <laughs> That must mean that our friendship comes across in the show. Yeah, actually, that's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> we um we only met quite recently and it was because of the sequel trilogy, right? Yeah, no, exactly. So I can't pinpoint the exact month, although I could go back through my private messages and find <laughs> out exactly when we first made contact. But we were both members of a forum um, in 2016, so after The Force Awakens came out. And I think I was just impressed by Kirsty's posts and felt like we were on a similar wavelength in terms of our takes on the sequel trilogy and how we were engaging with it. And I can't even remember exactly why the idea struck me. I think I, maybe I'd been listening to Star's podcast myself and was like, I can do this, <laughs> but I need someone to do it with. And so, yeah, Kirsty struck me as a potential candidate and I suggested the idea. 
And yeah, then we met at Celebration Europe in 2016, which was held in London. So that was our first face-to-face meeting. And we got on swimmingly and here we are now. So yeah. (laughs) Would you say that's accurate, Kirsty? Am I recalling that correctly? Yeah, I think a large part of that early bonding was about, you know, you say like you saw my posts and agreed with them, but it was also how many people seem to disagree with both of us. Oh yeah, so, you mean like, in terms of the anti-movement at the time? I guess, yeah, if you want to call it that. I I, for some reason I feel like anti is kind of um, more like the Tumblr shipping side of things and then yeah. where we were posting like, on the forum was very mm. much like a, oh, how do you want to characterise it? Um, um, if, you know, if we're going like with the the stereotypes, it's kind of like the, the dude bro no emotion in my Star Wars, Kylo Ren's going to be an evil villain forever, he killed Han Solo, that kind of thing. Yes. So we were like, oh, someone kind of on my wavelength. <laughs> Let's yeah. talk. <laughs> no, definitely. We stood out to each other, let that way. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, it's really nice and it's lovely that we do give across the idea that we could have been friends since we were children because... Yeah, like I consider Kirsty one of my closest friends now. Oh, same. Oh, thank you. Um, And yeah, I think it's just wonderful because the sequel trilogy, I'll always be grateful to it. Like, because on a personal level, I've been able to meet so many wonderful people and forge like friendships with people that I would never have encountered otherwise. And yeah, I think there's something really magical about that. And yeah, fandom can just be the best sometimes. And yeah, my friendship with Kirsty is an example of that so I'm very grateful for it same I think you know for all like the stuff that we've been talking about with these various articles and kind of the the overall perception of how fans have responded to the sequel trilogy is is kind of on the negative side but it has brought so much to so many of the fans um yeah and the story has really allowed people to connect in these ways that I don't think any of us expected um when you see the similar things within the story from someone else and it means that you're kind of in line with your perspective on certain things and what you want out of storytelling and what you care about as a person to connect with someone on that is really fantastic and it's allowed that for so many people not just us as an entire community out there who's been built around the story and it's so wonderful um so yeah i kind of wish people would focus on the positive a little more yeah save what we love so important guys save what you love um but yeah no i feel like that's a lovely note to end the episode on actually it's like nice positive end point so i'm rachel and you can find me on stars nonsense on tumblr i'm kirsty and you can find me at bastila bay on tumblr and you can find us both on twitter at scavengers horde until next time bye bye